0: My name is Luke Kane. I'm joined by my esteemed co-host Damian Heath. Hello. And Cameron Crothers. Hello. And you are listening to the inaugural episode of our podcast, Celluloid Junkies. Celluloid Junkies. Junk, junk, junk. So every month we are going to profile a film that we consider to be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, even though we have nothing to do with the National Film Registry, who, by the way, have not selected this month's title for preservation. Although there is a Facebook campaign for its inclusion. I am talking, of course, about John Carpenter's 1982 gloomy science fiction thriller, The Thing.
1: Somebody in this camp being what he appears to be, right now that may be one or two of us. By spring it could be all of us. It takes us over. Then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. There's a storm hitting us in six hours. We're gonna find out who's who. Nobody trusts anybody now.
2: Benny's was right there, Mac. I swear to god it had a hold of him! That was one of those things out there, trying to imitate him, Gary. You gonna let him give the orders? I mean he can be one of those things! Out,
0: was thing. Now, you should know there will be spoilers, so if you haven't yet seen The Thing, I suggest you get up out of your cave and stream, download eBay the Blu-ray or murder someone and steal their copy of it before tuning in, because we are going to be going through this film with needlepoint precision, discussing its origins, development, production, release, reception, and reappraisal over the years. The Thing was released by Universal Studios in June of 1982, and it runs 109 minutes. The original tagline was, Man is the warmest place to hide. It was John Carpenter's eighth film between Escape from New York and Christine, and it stars Kurt Russell as a helicopter pilot stationed at a research facility in the Antarctica, where he and a crew of 11 men discover a crashed UFO site, and soon after find themselves under attack by an alien presence that can assimilate life forms and mimic their behaviour. Not sure who they can trust, the men try to stop the entity before it insidiously wipes out every organism in its path. The film had a budget of $15 and barely recouped its cost upon its release. Critics were unenthusiastic and the film went largely unnoticed, but it's enjoyed a healthy afterlife and has been reassessed over the years. It's now considered by many to be one of the most accomplished science fiction films ever made, rivaling Carpenter's Halloween as his best film to date. Damien, what did you think of The Thing? It's uh, always been one of my favourite movies, Uh, one of my favourite horror movies
3: as well. Um, You said it was John Carpenter's eighth. Movie That's his sixth feature film. Right. Um, And uh, he did a couple of short movies before that. Came after, obviously, The Fog um, and uh, Escape from New York and Halloween. uh, And he'd done Dark Star and Assault on Precinct 13 before
0: that. (laughs) My folder just fell off my lap. Cameron?
1: Uh, Yeah, I I totally agree with the... Notion that it's uh, John Carpenter's best film. I mean, I think it's...
0: You think it's better than Halloween? I think
1: it's leagues above Halloween. Really? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I, I love them both a tremendous amount, but I think it's, as a film, it's infinitely better. Is that
0: because of the annoying teenage dialogue in Halloween?
1: No, I just think it's more serious. Like, yeah. uh, it just feels it feels like there's a greater sense of weight to what's going on in that.
0: Yeah, um, actually. Well, when I was reading about it, Carpenter said, was saying that it does have a real somber feeling yeah. it's a very humorless film
1: that's that's something i yeah that, that's so present from the outset mm. there is like the f- couple of jokes in the film seem to fall quite flat because you just you don't necessarily believe them yeah. in the context of what's going
3: on i think uh, halloween obviously um gets a lot of praise for starting the slasher genre or being the biggest film of the slasher genre yeah mm-hmm. um but the thing is for me a much Better
0: film. It certainly made a bigger impre- impression on me than when I first saw Halloween, mm. and I think it it has probably aged a bit better than Halloween. It's yeah. his
3: favorite of his movies.
0: Is it really? Yeah. Yes. I didn't know that.
3: Yep, yeah. it's his little baby, which is why it hurt. The criticism hurt a lot, yeah, like and he doesn't speak about it.
0: Well, I should just say quickly that it's um, the thing is based on um, John W. Campbell's short story "Who Goes There," which was that was published. In, uh... 1938. And it was first published in Astounding Science Fiction. Campbell was the uh, editor at the time. It was published under a pseudonym, Don A. Stewart. Apparently he had that pseudonym because his stories changed in tone. They went from, like, they call them space operas, which is really, like, happy, yeah. kind of zesty space adventures, to darker, moodier, which this clearly is. So what and was the magazine called? It was called Astounding Science Fiction. And he was the editor until his death.
3: Yeah. Forty-four mm-hmm. years, <coughs> longest-running science fiction magazine in
0: the world. Yeah, and also it was the last significant piece of fiction that he ever wrote. He was twenty-eight years old.
3: Twenty-eight. Yeah. What the fuck? And, yeah. Uh, he's apparently one of the biggest names in science fiction writing. Yeah. At least.
0: But he was uh, very odd. In <coughs> endorsed the pre-Civil War slave movement. slave the, trade movement in America. Good it's
3: friends the, with Isaac Asimov, <laughs> who was uh, who he found to be. Uh, a big influence on him and Asimov pretty much denounced him and yeah. stopped talking to him for a
0: long time based yeah. on
1: the racism stuff based on understand. his views yeah right yeah. he apparently I'll, couldn't
0: keep friends
1: did he ever <laughs> did he ever speak about the um, the novella after he released it like does he have any comments on public record well, about look. it because i wonder if there is some like if he if there is some sort of allegory in the the creature sort of thing. Or, if, I mean... What well, are you yeah. To watch into it?
0: Certain, no, I think you're right. Carpenter talks a bit about what the monster in the film might mean. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into that, though. Okay. I found that there are four movie adaptations. Hmm. The first was The Thing from Another World, directed by Chris Christian Nyby. There's some contention about whether or not he directed it. No, well, People say it was Howard Hawks. Carpenter the, firmly believed it was Howard Hawks.
3: The official line is that How, Howard Hawks produced it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then, of course, there was... Um, like a Steven Spielberg, Poltergeist kind of situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: Which is funny, Poltergeist will come up again.
0: They're here. Then there's a, a much lesser known adaptation called The Horror Express. It was made in 1972, directed by Eugenio Martin. starred Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing.
1: Was it a hammer?
0: No, but it was associated with it, yeah, I sure. believe. Wow, well, I've never heard of it. But both of those two films don't really follow the short story very Accurately, They're very, very loose adaptations, whereas The Thing is far more dedicated to the original text. Mm. And then after that, of course, there was the 2011 remake of The Thing, which is actually a prequel. prequel. Prequel,
3: yeah. Well, the last scene in that is the first scene in this. Did anyone watch the
1: remake? Not, we did, didn't we, didn't we all not, watch not it? Not for the study of it. this podcast. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, I mean, we all watched it in the cinema together. We saw it together.
3: I, I didn't mind it. I actually like it. I hated it. I, I
1: hated it. I, I, I liked the tie-in and mm. all of the alien stuff. I thought it was really interesting. I, um, The effects instantly felt aged straight away because mm. of the CG and stuff like that. Um, It just felt Strange to me, like it just didn't seem like it was on on par on that. It felt boneless
0: to me, I couldn't even remember anything specific about it. But
1: I remember the bits, the alien stuff I liked, and I liked how it tied into the thing. Okay. Like I I liked that element of it. I thought it had a lot of reverence for the um, the original film, and I like that.
3: It's got a lot of problems that modern day horror remakes have. Um, but it's interesting, I found an article that was uh, about the thing and about the intellectual property of the thing. And you've got Jason Voorhees and Freddie and Michael Myers, who are really mm. easy to market. And then you've got The Thing, which yeah. has been the movie The Thing. There's, there's obviously the story, and the, the previous movies would tie in. And then you've got the remake, and there was a video game. <laughs> But it all feels very loosely connected. Because as there's no to visual like iconography. Yeah,
0: yeah. Like, yeah. yeah the, the hockey mask. Yeah. Or the...
1: I mean, maybe if the spider head had been in everything, <laughs> that would be it. That's what yeah. I was going to say, what would you say would be the most interesting visual cue point, I guess, sort of? um. The would really, the spider it's, thing? It's too difficult. You? Oh, yeah, it,
3: from the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say so. But it's too difficult to come up with one.
0: Well, I actually, yeah. and I was going to talk to you guys that about you this. put
3: into everything.
0: I just yeah, see yeah. vaginas. The whole the whole thing just looked like it was just these vaginas that were opening up these disgusting female genitalia folds that kept kind of being thrust at the actors. Not, I seriously wrote not, the word vagina like five times. Not said in
3: a min- misogynist tone, of course,
0: <laughs> of course yeah, not. Yeah. No, no, um, yeah. more in a gay tone. Like it, it's yeah, a foreign yeah. thing that I has. has no <laughs> I think to we me. should
1: state from the get go that you're not a vagina fan. <laughs> <laughs> this is a conflict of interest.
0: We might need to state from the I outset that I am a man because my voice is very high and feminine.
1: I, I actually... S- when I rewatched watched it um, a couple of days ago, I never once wrote down Vagina. <laughs> so I never wrote it down either. I so never saw that. <laughs> I <I'd> trust <interesting laughs> yeah, anyway.
3: All
0: right, well, anyway, let's start. I Should would have... like to see the five times it comes up.
3: Nice, uh, <laughs> Don't worry, I will.
0: <laughs> so, um, okay, so let's sort of start from the beginning. So the film begins with two shots of a UFO hurtling towards Earth, mm-hmm. which is very clearly a model. But the only reason I think we think that is because now we have obviously... There's been so many more advancements um, in special effects technology that it does sort of stick out at the front. For does, to me as being a yeah, model. it
1: feels a lot more cartoony and even more so than a film like you know two thousand and one like yeah. which is obviously models, but it still has aged so well. But I mean, you know, it's a. Do open.
0: you think it's a matte shot? Uh, I wouldn't. Uh,
1: I would say that the world would be like the Earth would be a matte. Thing, yeah. um, the actual spinning disc. I'm assuming it's a model, and it's like a not. Op- they call it like opticals, which is what they just splice bits of films together and stuff. Yeah, because I, I assume know, though, because you know CG wasn't there, so it has to be some sort of trickery like that. But it does feel quite cartoony, like the actual um, spinning disc feels quite cartoony. I think they did a couple of different
3: openings. Oh yeah, and well, uh, I guess none of them were really that successful.
0: Yeah, <laughs> one of the
3: better ones made it into the movie. Do you
1: do you think that knowing that that alien ship and having seen that do you think that's um super important to reiterating throughout the story that 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 it's an alien rather than a creature like i know that you see them find the ship but do you think it would be as obvious that it's an alien if you hadn't seen that opening shot that's a good
0: point
3: i I think it would have been explained yeah yeah you've got to read uh, some stuff into it, I think you would have got to that point.
0: I mean, obviously, we still would have had the shot where they go to check out the site themselves mm. personally, yeah, for sure. seeing it on the Norwegian video. Mm. And at that point, you'd be like, okay, well, that's a ship. Because yeah, it's got yeah. that, you know, and it's got that claw that comes right out, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I thought was really cool. I loved that. Mm. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I really liked how, because I saw, I watched the original before this as well and there's a part in the original where they all they all find the site and they all stand around it and they realize that they're standing in a perfect circle like oh my god it's a perfect circle and then they realize that it's a ship underneath and i kind of liked that the film kind of paid homage to that in that way it was like through the the characters looking at a video of that scene Mm -hmm. that essentially was a scene in the original film so you should
3: say john carpenter loved the original movie.
0: Yes, yes. He saw it in 1952. It was released the year before and he said it was one of the most powerful moments, movie moments for him. I
2: think I saw it in a re-release. It was one of those films where as you watched it, it was so frightening that my popcorn flew out of my, my hands. In other words, when they went up to the doorway and they had they had this uh, Geiger counter he's and he, they opened the door and he's right there,
0: I went nuts. And it's interesting that even though he loved that film, he broke so far away from that film with his version Mm -hmm. of the thing.
3: Which was intentional because he loved the movie, the original movie.
0: And I'm so glad he did because the original film is... I I started watching and I was like, oh, this is real B-movie territory. Like, even for 1952, it's so B-movie. But then... As you go through it, it does sort of take hold of you, and it becomes. There were parts of it that were nerve wracking, oh, which is really? yeah, which is hard in a film that's that aged. I should say just quickly about the mat shots that John Carpenter had Albert Whitlock doing the mat shots, and he'd actually worked with Alfred Hitchcock initially on The Birds, and Hitchcock was so impressed with him that he worked on every subsequent Hitchcock. Did film he work on
1: them. that shot where the, that very famous shot in The Birds, where there's like was it like 52 pieces of spliced film
0: No no this is the the real the the aerial shot looking down at the town after the cars on fire and then you see the seagulls i think oh, okay, seagulls yeah, yeah. that come you All know right. from behind the camera into the frame mm. After we see these two shots of the UFO we cut to Antarctica 1982 and there are a series of spectacular aerial shots of an Alaskan Malamute evading gunfire from an overhead chopper and I was really struck. I thought it was a really seductive entry point into a movie that kind of belies what's actually coming. Yeah, because sure. it's a pretty gross, awful film.
1: Yeah, yeah. but those yeah, shots a majestic just look. Kind of, yeah. yeah,
0: but I appreciated them.
1: Yeah, me too. I love those shots. It
0: reminded me of Carpenter how he opens up Halloween with those real wide shots of mm. Laurie strode walking down. It seems like he likes to make his films very open and then just make them kind of close yeah, and yeah. close and close in. So then we move to the uh, the research station number four. And we're introduced to the crew, um, and these crew guys are like playing ping pong and reading books.
3: That's the only time it's research station number four. Yeah, in the movie, I'm
0: wondering, do these guys actually do any research? Because every time we see them, they are just doing recreational activities. It becomes
3: outpost 31, obviously. But yeah, no, they they, they all, they're always doing just fun games. Well, out- I mean, what are you going to do? You're down in Antarctica.
0: Yeah. But Output, I thought Outpost 31 was in the original script and then they variegated so out, from that. Outpost 31 comes up a couple of times in the movie.
1: Is that when one of them when Kurt Russell signs off or yes. something? Yes.
3: Yeah. I think that's the only shot of Station, Antarctic Station number four. Yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, but I liked the sort of very gentle way we meet the characters. And yeah. the first time we see Mac, he's um, playing chess yes. and drinking.
1: <clears throat> and the voice and, of the chess person um, is. Adrian, what's her last name? Adrian Barbeau. Yeah, and that was John Carpenter's wife at the time and was yeah. in The Fog. She was the lead in The Fog,
0: yes. And she was the daughter in Maud. In Maud, that's right, <laughs> she was.
3: So, any guesses as to how old Kurt Russell was Ooh. when when the thing was shot?
0: He was just at the right age, I tell you what. <laughs> uh,
1: I'd say really late 20s.
0: I would say early 30s. Oh, he
1: was exactly 30. Oh. Uh, yeah. yeah. So he's attractive. Very, very baby-faced.
3: So you know? attractive. Um, that's the one thing that I noticed. So you think of him as quite rugged in this movie because he's got yeah. a big beard but yeah. he's very baby-faced.
0: Did anyone think it was a bit much when he threw the drink into the hard drive because yes. <laughs> he lost the yeah, game yeah. of chess? Yeah. Yeah. And What's
3: he call her? I a cheating know. bitch.
0: Yeah, That was that was
1: um, one of those instances of comedy that fell flat. Yeah, just, <clears throat> it didn't play. Doesn't, um, yeah. As well as any part of the rest of the film like any element of comedy and it just feels like it's there to be something and it's there to kind of make them more human but yeah. weirdly it kind of has the opposite effect I don't none of his actions in the rest of the film make me feel like he would have poured a scotch thing into a computer
0: yeah that's so true because um, he's not the hothead yeah. when things get bad yeah, yeah. he's the one being constructive and
1: keeping it together and computers in the 80s very fucking expensive and Dan and Antarctica had not much to do and now he's broken one yeah um, yeah. One that's less, one less recreation. what if he wants activity?
0: to play chess again yeah, yeah.
3: We're not going to search, is a cheating bitch.
0: But anyway, I think these opening shots, we, we're supposed to sense that these are guys that are very isolated, feeling very dull and having a very dull experience in an extraordinary place. One more thing about uh, Adrienne
3: Barbeau in uh, that chess scene, she's the only female actress yeah. in the entire movie used in any capacity. Um, there's a scene from a TV show, I think it's called Let's Make a Deal, where mm. there's some uh, women on it, but uh, obviously not acting clip from a TV show. Um, But, yeah, she is the only actress in it. Apart from that, it's all men throughout the entire movie. I
0: actually wanted to talk about that, Mm. the choice to make it an all-male cast. Um, Carpenter says something in that Terror That Takes Shape documentary, Mm -hmm. really good documentary. He says, it's more fun to make this an all-male movie simply because you wouldn't have to deal with that issue. But he doesn't actually specify what that issue is. Mm. He says he hadn't seen an all-male movie cast in a while and thought it would be fun. I'm guessing the issue he's talking about is sex, that he didn't have to address the sex and issue. Sex
1: or like how you represent a woman in that in context. That, in that context, does she have to be like Ripley, where she becomes this ultra, you know. Oh, that's so,
3: that's so funny because Alien had obviously been so successful a few years before, so it can be done very successfully. Mm. Yeah. Um, so to shy away from that, yeah, you'd have to assume. Maybe it's uh, like Seinfeld, they just don't know how to write for a woman.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because there is a uh, there is a female member of the crew in the thing from another world. Um but she's just this awful character. <laughs> She's there simply to provide a love interest for the captain. And when she's not doing that, she's either serving coffee or excusing herself from the room when mm. the conversation becomes too much for or her.
1: Maybe <laughs> ma- maybe the sex thing is also a thing. Like, in terms of it being a remote outstation, you know, you've got however many men, you know, situated in this thing with one girl. Well, they could
0: have had two or three. I mean, there's 11, isn't there 12? Uh, I think yeah. there were 12. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I don't know why I ultimately went there to only be one woman. The writer said... You know, women wouldn't
3: be in that situation, which obviously is very 80s, 70s, 80s point of view. Absolutely. Especially looking at it today, I'm sure there's plenty of women down there. Mm. Um, but maybe it was just to eliminate uh, that idea and not make it uh, mm. some kind of clone of Alien. It, yeah. That had been done, it had been done successfully. Um, she was the lone survivor in Alien, so that's such
1: a big statement back yeah. then. Um, so maybe just eliminate that altogether. Do you guys think the film suffers for not having a woman in it? No. Neither. I mean,
3: not not, 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 not in terms of the final product. Not at all. No, I I think it's. I don't think you get. (laughs) I don't think you get away with it today. um, But also those films that are trying to be too politically correct these days and trying to put in a woman or several women and also different nationalities and different races, um, just to tick tick off those boxes rather than to aid the story. That's a worse
1: way to go.
0: Yeah, like the remake of Predators, it felt like it was so oh, it's, conscious. It's so
1: funny that you're saying that. Really? Cause I was thinking that <laughs> we're talking about political correctness, and remember uh, somebody who we were seeing the film with mentioned to you, "Oh, there's no." Um, Iraqi, yeah, person. and you were like, Yeah, it's a good point, and I was like, No, it's not, it's a really <laughs> stupid point. Like, why does he have to cover the whole demographic of yeah, the thing? You don't, and that's, and that's not... what I meant.
0: It drew attention to the fact that it was like, you know, it had been ve- like it was the screenplay was vetted through this PC machine. Yeah, like, yeah, let's yeah. make sure everybody is covered. That's, that's
1: the thing. I mean, I think uh-huh. it actually probably adds to the fact that morals aren't particularly present in this film, yeah. I wonder if bringing a female in there somehow brings some sort of moral That's element, true. element to the situation. Like, um, you know, in films, there tend to be the ones that need to get protected in that kind of thing. And that would be a moral thing. Yeah. Like, if that makes Yeah, no, any, it does. any form of and sense. but like,
0: I agree with you. And it's funny you said that because I think one of the major themes of the thing is nihilism, is the sense that there mm-hmm. is no God and nothing means nothing. That
1: is one of the best parts of the film to me. Like, Me too. Um, nothing to do with personal beliefs or anything. I just think it just completely plays. It Absolutely. Feels, it feels so relevant today, like in, in some weird way, in terms of how people act, it feels strange. Yeah. Like, it feels strangely like I could be watching this in the cinema. Yeah. Is, yeah.
0: And I think there's a few moments where that really shines through the fact that these, these characters don't necessarily have a... a a very moralistic or hopeful outlook on the world
2: Mm.
0: particularly when and i know i'm jumping ahead but when they discover the alien ship and they discover that they have encountered alien life none of them care they are all so indifferent (laughs) one of the guys is like yeah the government you know they've been doing it for years so there's already that cynicism about the government that mistrust of the government do you think that would be accurate that they would react like that. I mean, I can't imagine
1: too many people would react
0: like that. No, well no one gets excited. No, yeah. no one gets, you know, mm. uh, interested. Inter- and it's
1: interesting point is the guy that said that line is the father of Amy Dunne in Gone Girl.
0: Oh really? Yeah. Oh my goodness! And it's funny, that's because crazy. Because
1: he's really good in Gone Girl and probably the weakest actor in this film. No,
0: I did the same thing with Childs, and yeah, I realized yeah. he was the guy from Requiem. He's like, in everything
1: too, though. Like he's in a lot. He's in Day Live as well. isn't What's he?
0: What's his name? Keith David. Keith David. Yes, he's Is really he in they good. Live? He's,
1: uh, he, he's the
3: uh, the second lead in They Live.
1: What do these things want, and
0: why are they here? After that
3: famous Rowdy Roddy Piper
1: he, is that that famous fight scene that goes on for? Yeah, the
3: yeah. the long fight scene. He's also in uh, the Paul Haggis Oscar Best Picture winner Crash. There's something about Mary, Pitch Black, The Chronicles of Riddick and Armageddon. Mm. Yeah, and he was Big Tim in Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, mm. what does he say in that film when uh, she she's uh, he's unzipped and he's waiting on the couch? There's I, didn't get, oh, so, I, yeah, I <laughs> didn't get it out for air. Yeah, that's I didn't get out for air. That's a that's a gross scene. It is really disgusting in Requiem for a Dream.
0: But anyway, let's get back to the guys. So uh, one thing I wanted to say was that I felt that this initial setup of these characters felt very very reminiscent of the way the characters are initially set up in Alien. Mm. And I feel like Alien is such a big Im- had such a big Im- influence on this film, um, only because of um, <clears throat> the mood. Certainly, for one, the tone, and also just that the characters are very natural and that it's sort of not a um, pristine, perfect place. There's muck, there's dirt, there's a griminess to it.
3: I agree with <coughs> that and also disagree to a, an extent. Um, Alien does introduce them all at a slower pace. Um, you do get to see them, you know, there's those birthing scenes of them coming out of the sleeping chambers and everything. Um, in this film, you do get a little bit lost at the start mm. as to who's who, how many there are. That's one of the things <clears throat> I think it doesn't set up perfectly.
0: Yes, um, although I don't think it suffers from that syndrome as much as Alien Three, where you cannot tell <laughs> yeah, you people tell, apart. Everyone's got shaved heads. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, if you look at this film, it's facing the same challenges. Most of the men are bearded. Very often, they're covered in glasses and in suits. Mm. Um, yet I still felt like I could follow individual people far you could, easier. You could.
1: When you I, The it. Thing. In The Thing. In The Thing, yeah.
0: As opposed to Alien 3.
1: Alien 3. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. I think Alien does it better, the first one. Yep. Yeah. The first movie does oh, it yeah. better than The Thing.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Do you. It's interesting that that got brought up because I have always thought that this film. Is not recognised on the same level as Alien, and I always feel like it should be. I feel really? like it should always be mentioned in the same sentence. Alien is the better film, granted, but not by a massive margin to me. I yep. think Alien has more more depth to it.
3: Yeah, I and know. that's why
1: it's probably regarded as a
3: lot. I
0: think more... Alien has a bit of a sharper edge to it. I think the Alien is a bit hits you a bit harder than the Thing does. And
3: again, Alien has that iconography of the Alien. Yes. Um, this
1: film does, but. All of those things. Too. Yeah, I always found myself far more um, threatened by the thing than I did the alien. Like I, really? I yeah I personally Yeah, yeah. Yeah, per- yeah. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that walking means. around <laughs> in town <laughs> at night. Yeah yeah, yeah yeah. Looking out for things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I didn't know what I was looking for. <laughs> um so I just looked at everyone with skeptical. I probably don't agree that aliens deeper. On some level, I, I really? don't, don't under—I don't understand that. There's still—I don't know that
0: it's deeper. I think it's more frightening. Yeah, I
1: don't. i, 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 I think Alien is the better film. I don't know. I'm not 100 percent sure why I think that, but I—I I know that it is. Who's the better director? Out of Ridley Scott and John Carpenter? Yeah. Ridley Scott. You'd- Probably have to say he's done a lot more films though. He's made so, a lot
0: uh, like his turkeys aren't as turkey-ish as John. Oh, Carpenters. some of them are. Like what? Some
3: of Ridley Scott's later films. I mean, we we went back and tried to rewatch Prometheus recently, and that was
1: pretty terrible. Yeah, I like. I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't like. I mean, it yet, he did though. have
3: a, a bunch of misses in there with Kingdom of Heaven and all of the ones around that time, which some people really
0: like. Yeah, but I mean, they're not as bad. As no. or as televisual as some of John Village Carpenter's of bad dams. films. I
1: think, I think if you've got like Alien and Blade Runner on your CV, yeah. you can do thirty bad films and it doesn't fucking matter. Really.
3: <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mean Carpenter does have that to an extent as well. Yeah, that, with that, that ten year period. Sorry, with
2: yeah, Halloween
3: and uh, yeah, that ten year period before he um, really fell off was really yeah. really really good.
0: Okay, so Matt becomes alert to the sound of the chopper. Um, that's trying to gun down the dog, and he heads outside. The Norwegian pilot still hasn't managed to kill the dog. He lands the helicopter and pops a grenade, which comes out of his hand in a very strange moment that feels like slapstick. Did you think this?
3: Uh, no, I didn't notice that. Did you notice that? Yeah. Where it when he when he like pulls oh, yes. the pin out and he goes, what up? Okay, <laughs> he he just like throws it back. Oh, this is this is uh, not the first uh, not the first one that he throws.
0: But yeah, so no, I thought it was, I was like, couldn't he find a better take of that? Because it is very comedic Hmm. and doesn't look like it's supposed to be. Because he he goes to throw the grenade and it accidentally comes out of his hand as he's ready to launch and then blows up the chopper that he was in. And then he starts ranting at all of the guys in Norwegian. They don't know what's happening. And then he starts firing and he shoots one of them in the leg. And that's when the captain, Gary, shoots him in the eye.
1: Which is a, which in complete contrast to that grenade scene is actually quite hard hitting and just, yeah, I I really, really love that scene. Yeah. I think it's so good.
0: Um, And Gary is the character that comes closest to showing that he has a conscience yeah. You can, Carpenter yeah. labors on him, and you can see he's really upset when he realizes that he's killed that Norwegian guy. And then later through the film, he's the one that struggles the most with the idea that his friends are no longer his friends.
3: Um, Definitely. He says, uh, yeah, rant's Norwegian. It does translate to get the hell away, it's not a dog, it's a thing. It's Imitating a Dog, It's Not Real, Get Away, Idiots. Well, that was clear. If only it was in English. (laughs) I don't know. I didn't watch it with subtitles. The Norwegian gunman was played by Larry J. Franco. Uh, He was uh, Kurt Russell's brother-in-law at the time. Ah. Uh, He acted in three films, which were obviously The Thing, The Strongest Man in the World, and later with John Carpenter, They Live. Uh, He's a producer. He produced this film. He produced seven of Carpenter's films, Escape from New York, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, They Live, and this one. You go on to produce a lot of blockbusters, such as Batman Returns and Batman Begins, Jumanji, if that's a blockbuster, Sleepy Hollow, Hulk, Jurassic Park 3, 2012, White House Down, and the recent sequel to Independence Day. Right, so he's very he's
1: a multi-multi-millionaire.
0: I would say <laughs> many, many times over. He's the short story. He's got a right. really
3: good cameo here. I love uh, him as the gunman. In this movie. Well, he doesn't have a lot to do. No, but he's, it's a fun. must be a fun cameo to play in a film that
1: pr- you're producing. Yeah. Um, I believe him with a gun.
0: So anyway, uh, after the Norwegian has been shot dead, um, the infected dog is taken in by the crew. And, of course, they don't know yet that he's infected. The team discover the dead pilot had only been stationed at the Norwegian site for eight weeks and that the plane was stocked with a shitload of kerosene, I think 15 canisters. That's our first clue that fire is the method by which they're going to ultimately get get at the thing.
3: And also, I mean, at this point, you don't kill many dogs in movies. so
0: There's a few dog deaths in this one. Well, <coughs> in this one
3: especially, there's a few dog deaths. Mm. But in, in movies generally, you don't kill the dog. To try and kill a dog in this movie, yeah. you want the dog to survive.
0: You're right, I think that animal deaths in film um, hit us in a very sensitive area, and maybe that's another reason why, upon its initial release, people felt a little too uncomfortable to embrace the film. That and, of course, the emphasis on body horror, which we'll talk later with the effects. Sure. But anyway, they, uh, Mac and the Doctor decide to visit the Norwegian site, and they find it burned out, along with a few petrified bodies that have been mangled out of shape and a large cutout of ice where it appears that something has been removed. I really liked this scene. I remember in particular when they land, the first shot is actually from the point of view of inside the camp. So it's sort of like something's watching them uh, come towards the site. And then I really liked how Mac found the guy having committed suicide before assimilation could finish. We can see that there is, it started, but there's those stringy goo Mm. things coming out of his hand. Mm. Um, and then, of course, they find the, the real disgusting thing out in the snow that's sort of half petrified.
3: Um, they shot a scene in there with a body that fell from the roof. Um, oh, really? And uh, I think it was too much of the slasher genre had come into Hollywood at the time. John Carpenter decided it's too much like that. It's too much like Halloween, and so he cut it out. Oh, interesting. Mm. So he didn't want those little jump scares. Um, and Christine,
0: a... he was kind of famous for not showing the corpse in Christine, and he's gone on record about how he was just sick of showing corpses, and this was around the same time he made that.
3: There's a line before they fly away to the Norwegian base where Max says, you really want to save those crazy Swedes, which is really funny that he said <laughs> Swedes. They've already established that the Norwegians are probably a very dismissive and uh, almost very American
0: thing to say to yeah, so just that, group them all together you're right but it also harks back to the fact that he just doesn't give a shit mm. and this is where this nihilism feeling of the movie comes into play it's sort of like he doesn't acknowledge who they are that they're people and that you know he doesn't even really he's not too concerned about trying to help them he kind of half heartedly agrees to fly, to fly over there and have a look
1: when you talk about that kind of like mentality that's there getting back to what we were talking about the captain earlier Yep. as well like there is genuinely not much reverence for life in this entire film no there isn't um, and I think like a really good example of that was when the captain tries to gain empathy from Kurt Russell's McCready before he's killing the about to kill Bennings the red headed guy yeah and he just and just gives no shits and just no. does it straight away he doesn't and, slow and, down yeah no, he just goes <laughs> He's grabbing that, the, and the so flamethrower good. and yeah. stuff. Yeah, um, that
0: is really good, and I do like. I agree with you. There is no reverence for life in this film. Yeah,
1: and that's something that's really interesting. There like, is one a line because yeah. what you're playing on is the audience a like the audience's ability to like empathise with these characters and care if they live or die Yeah, but they don't care if each character lives or dies so there's a really interesting dynamic because usually you're kind of like alright well this person cares for this person if they die that means something but they don't care for each other like much at all in the
0: film even though we the audience come to care for those characters immensely none of the characters which is a
1: weird achievement
0: dog Walks into a room where there's a shadow on the wall. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Who we assume is Clark, but we don't, we're not ever explicitly well, not, told not that.
1: Not really. I don't think in the movie you necessarily assume it's Clark straight away. Do you know the story with Carpenter and who he got to play? Well, the...
3: Carpenter says that he got a stuntman to do the shadow. So is it looked correct? like no, yeah, so yeah. it looked like none of them. Although not many people believe that. Not many people believe that he, he got that. He's tried to throw people off the scent of Probably who just, that yeah. was in that shadow. Okay. Um, there's uh, quite a debate about who the shadow could be. For years, apparently, it was pretty much accepted that the shadow belongs to Norris, who was revealed as a thing.
0: Well, I only assumed it was Clark afterwards when um, Blair is talking to Mac. Oh, no, no Blair is talking to Clark. And says, you were alone with the dog for 60 to 90 minutes without it being in a decontamination type process. And Clark admits that he was. And that's why I assumed the shadow on the wall was him. But I think it's kind of great that Carpenter doesn't give us the answer.
3: But the scene, the scene where the dog walks around the camp and walks into this room, who's, uh, only ca- uh, this person's cast in shadow on the wall... Um, so there's no chance the audience could know who it is at this point. Yeah. Um, it foreshadows a lot of the doubt that runs through the rest of the movie as to who is or isn't. Even though nothing's been said, yeah. the dog's going in there, you immediately think, who is that? Mm. And for whatever reason, that foreshadows what's going
0: to be coming. And um, we immediately sense that the dog is not really a dog because that, that, that station is crowded for a long time and then it's sort of people leave. And the dog is hiding and then waits for someone to be on their own and to be vulnerable. Yeah, and there's a lot of
3: those things that come up. Okay, there's the shadow, there's a conversation later, and there's another conversation later. And then, so that doubt kind of builds a little bit until you think, oh, something's not right here. Obviously, they're off checking out this Norwegian base. Yeah. Uh, You see that something's definitely not right. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of debate about who that
0: shadow belongs to. And um, later we see when uh, Mac and the dog get back from the Norwegian camp, um, the dog is watching them land through the window. And again, we get the sense that it's not really watching them as a dog, mm. that it has a vested interest in them, and it's, it's carefully assessing everybody around it. Mm. Um, we then have more shots of the guys playing pool. So they were playing ping pong earlier, now they're playing pool. Watching TV and smoking a joint, playing cards. And I just couldn't help but think that I wanted their job. <laughs> Okay, so then we come to the autopsy scene, which um,
3: this is. It's the first major scene with all of the characters. And present. it's the first. Well, almost all of them.
0: Yes, and it's um, the first, I guess, effects yep. scene. So this thing is completely disgusting. Mm. This was a Rob Boutine creation. Mm. It looks like it's obviously. He's 22, which is
3: ridiculous. <laughs> it is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. He was 22. He also acted in The
0: Fog? He did. Mm. He was a huge fanboy of Halloween. Mm. And then he met through Dean Cundy, he got introduced to John Carpenter. Dean Cundy's the cinematographer. Yes, thank you. And, um, and then, you know, kind of said, Oh, if you've got a creature role, something like Michael Myers in Halloween. And so he gave him the role of one of the ghosts in the fog. Mm. I think it was during filming of that that, he, that Carpenter told him he was making the thing and essentially started to offer him the job mm. as the main special effects guy. But um, in Terror Takes Shape, Botine is perhaps, I guess, the central interview of that documentary and I just loved him. Sure. He was He's so funny, he's so dark. His face lights up whenever he's saying something really awful. Like he talks about, um, in one point, getting a guy who had no arms. Arms were like, actually
2: cut off here, right, in an in a injury, an industrial accident, right?
3: Rob <coughs> Botine, uh, his team was were really the only happy people. After the test screenings, um, uh-huh. is that right? <laughs> and I guess that's because his his work is so heavily featured in the movie, and it's uh, it's awesome. No matter what the reception of the film is, yeah. his work is awesome. Absolutely. Uh, he did work on the nineteen seventy six remake of Hong Kong as well as Star Wars, the original Star Wars, uh, both of which were uncredited, so you can only assume they weren't vital work. Uh, he first worked with Carpenter, as we said, on The Fog. Uh, But it was 1981's The Howling that shot him to some kind of superstardom. He'd later work on Twilight Zone, the movie, Legend, The Witches of Eastwick, Robocop, Total Recall, Basic Instinct, uh, Mission Impossible, Charlie's Angels. He worked recently on HBO's Game of Thrones. Uh, Cameron, you'll like that he also did work on Seven and Fight Club. What was he needed for in Basic Instinct? Maybe (laughs) he was one of those, is this a reference to Vagina
0: Luke? I didn't know Sharon Stone's vagina was a special effect. <laughs> but there you are. Um, I thought the it was also interesting. He, um, he put his heart and soul into this film and he actually lived on the Universal lot for a year and five weeks and by the end of filming ended up in a hospital with a severe case of exhaustion.
3: Mm, yeah, I read that. He's, uh, he had the a kind of compound about ten minutes away from the Universal <laughs> yeah. lot. And he was
0: so overloaded with work that they then brought in Stan Winston to just do one of the effects, mm. which is, we'll get to that, the dog pen effect.
3: Stan Winston, who had worked on <clears throat>
0: Alien. Yeah. And I think this is the first time where all of the characters are standing around and they are, I guess, interested in the thing that they've found at this site. But there's no real <laughs> ex- excitability or, or, you know, it, there's not really a major sense of distress. They're all kind of looking at it like, yeah, okay, it's a corpse of an alien. mm um, and I think this again harks back to that idea of well they don't really care about anything because there's nothing to care about. Yeah, sure. But the doctor remo- removes human organs from the corpse. Meanwhile, the dog is locked up because he bites one of the guys. Now, who is the guy that he bites? Didn't realise someone had been bitten. Yeah. Yeah. Or he goes ah. It, right. it kind of suggests that he was kind of gentle. Was it not just the in dog. the
3: way? I thought the dog was just in the way. <laughs> Anyway <laughs> it's um, the pivotal plot point.
0: <laughs> one of my favorite moments in the film is when the dog is brought into the It's pit. not a
3: zombie though I guess a bite doesn't make someone into a thing.
0: Well I would I would think how, how, how does it contract then who knows? I assumed it was with contact certainly with just, contact. Just, just with contact I would have thought one of those tendrils
3: would have to come out.
0: Well yeah we see that the thing does that Something in some would have ways. to transfer into but when it's like doing its insidious contact. Mm. It's obviously, you know, can't just shoot a tentacle out and grab someone. Mm. I really, really love when the dog is is um, yeah. sent into the pen and the feeling between it and the other dogs and yeah. the way Carpenter captures that. Yeah, yeah. It's and really the, cool. Even
3: the composition of the shot with the dog framed centrally,
1: staring right ahead. Yeah. It's really interesting. And its
0: ears go down, its neck kind of goes down. Yeah. Kind I mean, of like,
1: all of the dog shots in the film are, are very, very good. You Like, you see, like, uh, like, it's such a strange thing to talk about, but, like, in all films that you see dogs, they always seem very, like, I don't know, like, posed. Or, and, yeah. And this is kind of just, it feels, you don't notice them as no. like being different from human in this. It's weird.
0: Yeah, I agree. They are really well done and I guess it would have taken him many, many shots to get that effect in the film because they are really well done. Mm.
3: Well, we've, we've <coughs> shot with dogs. We they're have. They're difficult. They are. <laughs> so this dog was either very well trained or um, John Carpenter was very lucky. Yeah. Because even the hundreds take to get what he got. It's yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty amazing. This is
0: where uh the dog starts to we see our first uh mutation where the thing reveals itself. Just even before that, how sorry did you feel for the other dogs? Yeah, yeah I felt bad. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah, it is really horrible. Cage. It is quite difficult to watch in that sense if you love dogs. This dog, it 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 kind of twists its head back and forth and then the head literally splits open and you see this purpley disgusting thing inside the dog and then all of these crazy tentacles come out and these like spindly type things that move really rapidly and the whole thing is kind of a little bit it's not like watching alien where you see little moments you see everything straight away it's lit in a way that you only see parts of it very suddenly and the lighting in that scene is like
1: really really
0: good yeah you really don't you couldn't after that scene, you couldn't really draw what you'd seen. You wouldn't be able to mm. clearly illustrate it because you're, you're, you're shown it very graphically and in prolonged shots, but you're still left with a sense that you're not quite sure what you've seen. Yeah. And I think that's one of the film's virtues. One of the crew see this transformation. So that was Dan Winston's work? Yes, we should say that. Yeah. This is his only
3: real part of... He, was co- he came on because uh, Rob Botine and the team were overloaded with
0: work mm.
3: so he came on refused to accept credit so he just got a thank you yeah
0: and he's France. very gracious in the documentary mm. about that he openly admits that this is Boutine's film mm. and that he just came in to sort of
3: so I wonder if he refused to accept credit after seeing a cut of the movie and he saw that some of the other work was such a high standard and he, he didn't want to be it. lumped in with uh, accepting credit for some of that other work, which yeah. is obviously a lot more extensive than this.
0: No, that was... I, I thought I thought he did well there in the doco when I saw that. Mm.
2: It was Rob's film, and he should be very proud of it. I'm, I'm thrilled for him, and I'm, I think what he did is outstanding.
0: So this is when I first wrote down Vagina. <laughs> this is the... This is a huge vagina. Like, it's huge, and it, like, opens up, and then there's, like, teeth mm. and tongues in the... In this thing that's this, I can only call it a vagina. That's no. what it is. It's pink. It's it's like dribbly. It's gross. It's a vagina. Radio. Right, yeah. And all the men at this point, um, Max sounds the alarm. He can hear. Um, I think he can hear the dogs barking or gunshots. Um, but but the men all come out. They all see it. It's completely horrifying. They just start um, shooting the shit out of it with with guns and mm. yeah and with and obviously mac has the flamethrower uh
3: child's comes with the flamethrower yeah i think it's bit...
0: interesting how quickly mac has already get the because f- obviously he's he's yeah. noticed the kerosene in the chopper and he straight away thinks well maybe fires the well answer. you know
3: what's funny is how quickly he asks for that flamethrower and how slowly it is used once it gets into the scene because he gets there <laughs> and really then much. he looks at the thing for what must be 30 seconds <laughs> Just watching it. Yeah. Um, and that allows uh, something which isn't really brought up for the rest of the movie. It allows part of it to get away.
0: Well, does it get away? I know that it reaches for the ceiling. It
3: reaches. Its, it knocks out the floorboards above it and gets away. That's what that's how I read it.
0: But I thought it tried to get through the ceiling and realised it couldn't. Right. So then it started to attack rather than try to escape. Okay. Um, okay. So um, anyway, uh, once they've dealt with that little problem... Um, Blair is now working on the uh, corpse that he has and he works out that it is an organism
2: organism that imitates other life forms and it imitates them perfectly.
0: The men watch the video that they took from the Norwegian station and that's where they see the men in that video standing around the crash site uh, to form a perfect circle. This is also where Carpenter has his cameo. Yeah,
3: He's one of the people on the video.
0: Yeah. Who's standing in that circle? Dick begins to suspect Clark is infected as he was alone with the dog for about sixty to ninety minutes after the dog got onto the got access to the station. They show that the Norwegians used grenades to excavate the ship from the ice. So then they yeah, so Blair
3: asks asks Clark at that point, <clears throat> and, and yeah. then looks uh, kind of silently away, which indicates that he has his doubts. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's just one of those other things that builds that idea of paranoia.
0: And then this takes them to the crash site. One of the men suggests that the ship's probably been there for about 10,000 years. 100,000 years. 100,000 years. 100,000 years. Very quick to determine. (laughs) (laughs) It's been there for 100,000 years (laughs) just by looking at it.
3: There's some crazy science in this movie. That's not the only part. But, yeah, very, just insanely quick. I'm sure they were very intelligent.
0: Yeah, you're right. Didn't even need to go and get some vials and some tests,
3: sit around. Surely that would take, you know
0: weeks to get a result
3: like that back from the lab
0: yeah and then this is where we get the men acting strangely indifferent to having discovered alien life
2: happens all the time man they're falling out of the skies like flies government knows all about it right mac
0: blair is uh, doing some more research And then with some really, really terrible computer graphics, the assimilation process of the alien is explained to us.
3: This is Blair watching the computer program. Yeah, Yeah. And this computer
0: program is capable of some crazy science as well. The
3: (laughs) actual text is probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism, 75%. So there's a computer program here written specifically for this scenario. Yes. And then it follows up with projection. If intruder organism reaches civilised areas, entire world population infected, Twenty-seven thousand hours from first contact. Yeah. So that's that's brilliant, <laughs> utterly brilliant. You can't do that these days with uh, advanced technology. I
0: kind of wanted the computer to break it down into days for me because well, I twenty-seven thousand
3: hours is one thousand one hundred and twenty-five days. Just how many years? Which is uh, three years and one month. Oh, it that's... sounds when you say twenty-seven thousand hours, it sounds really quick. And there uh, yeah. Station Thirty-One outpost Oh, is
0: well, that well, when well. that comes in as well? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah,
3: so three years and one month is how long until uh, that's amazing. the entire world population is infected. But it yeah. sounds a lot quicker when you say 27,000 hours. So it sounds like they've got quite a t- bit of time to come up with a cure.
0: Actually. Yeah, <laughs> it does. But it is nice that we immediately know what the stakes are. Um, and a- <laughs> yeah. Well,
3: he uh, John Carpenter said he wanted to hammer home two ideas in there about the stakes of the movie and about the idea of assimilation and uh, the text uh uses some of that text. Yes. The text on the computer. Carpenter Intruder also organism.
0: calls this film uh the first of his apocalypse trilogy. Mm. That's With but the
3: I... what, Prince of Darkness
0: and In the Mouth of Madness? Yeah. Yeah. So it's by far the best one. <laughs> While they're having this discussion about what they've found, um, the cook comes in complaining that someone's left their underwear in the kitchen.
3: Back on where Blair's in there doing the computer analysis, at this point he takes a gun out of the drawer.
0: Yes, yeah, sorry, that's true.
3: It's, again, casting uncertainty because you don't know. He obviously has some more information than the other crew members have about yeah. how this works. Well, he's had the figures. But you don't know if he <laughs> takes the gun out of the drawer for, uh, because he's scared of other people or because he himself fears being targeted as a thing.
0: Yeah, the uh, radio guy, I think his name's Windows? He suggests burning the body.
3: Originally his name was Sanchez.
0: Yeah, thank In God the they changed it.
3: To Windows. I
0: just groan <laughs> at the idea of a, a member of a crew being named Sanchez. I feel like that's happened to me ad nauseum at the movies. Well, they
3: did, uh, I think uh, it was written as a Hispanic role, and then... Uh, or, or and they
0: characters. said, no, we want white men. No, they said
3: <laughs> yeah. uh, that they wanted it to at least be open to a different name and it was changed to something else before it was changed to windows, mm. which whoever had that idea. Doors. Brilliant, isn't it? It is. Windows.
0: Doors. That's when uh, Vening suggests uh, that they can't burn it because it's going to win somebody the Nobel Prize, which is really the first time yeah. that any character acknowledges that what they found is significant. Mm.
2: We've got to just burn these things
1: can the find of the century. Or just that any character like showing any kind of ambition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like,
0: no we see at that point, I don't know what Windows does, but um, we see something dripping out of the body bag. It's our first indication that the thing they found is actually alive. Fukes pulls Mac aside and he says that uh, he thinks there might be something wrong with Blair, and that's when he reads Blair's notes, and the notes say that cellular activity is still active inside this thing. So we kind of get those two notes at the same time. It's drummed home, okay, this thing isn't dead yet.
3: Just quickly, do you know any other movies that Blair has been in?
0: I feel like he's been in everything.
3: He, uh, the, the role was originally Donald Pleasance was considered for it. He'd obviously been uh, Dr. Loomis in Halloween. He was the president in Escape from New York. Uh, but the role went to Wilford Brimley. Um, you would probably know him best, Luke, as Ted Spindler. In the China Syndrome,
0: there was a vibration.
3: He's oh. Jack Lemmon's assistant who defends Jack yeah. Lemmon in that movie? He says that he was my friend. He wasn't emotionally disturbed. Yeah, I love him. Yeah. in that He's, movie. Yeah, really kind of fatherly, mm. grandfatherly. Type. I just ordered that on is Blu-ray. China Syndrome. Sorry. Was he in Cocoon as well? If that's
0: true, this is a real sad moment. I for think
3: a l- Cameron. I think a lot of people in the thing <laughs> were in a lot of sci-fi movies after the thing, so it's entirely possible. <laughs>
0: I love putting that one on on a Sunday afternoon. A nice cup of tea. It's
1: just a query on... Do you, them do stats, you watch though. them all?
3: Like the sequels as well? Or? Just, just quickly on <laughs> some more casting. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Just quickly on some more casting. So Donald Pleasance was uh, considered for Blair. Um, Isaac Hayes was considered as Childs. Um, He worked with John Carpenter in Escape from New York He would later go on to voice Chef on South Park
0: Oh, that's how I know that name
3: Brian Dennehy was considered for the role of Dr Copper uh, And the lead actor role, which obviously went to Kurt Russell uh, Tom Berenger, Ed Harris, Tom Atkins, Jeff Bridges, Christopher Walken Nick Nolte, Chris Christopherson And the one who apparently got the closest and flew over to do a read with John Carpenter Was Jack Thompson, who was Australian
0: Yes, and I think it's interesting that um, because Kurt Russell had just worked with John Carpenter on Escape from New York, they were just spitballing ideas of actors. He'd and also, then very casually, Carpenter said, Hey, do you want to do it? And then he was like, Yeah, all right, why not? He liked the script.
3: They worked in a couple of movies. They did a TV movie about Elvis. From, yes, this was that. their third collaboration.
0: Yeah. Um, but also. Um, and they did one more. Kurt Russell said that when he originally read the script, and this again, sorry, harks back to Alien, but it was more written more as an ensemble piece mm. and that, uh, that Russell's character would emerge as the victor, much like Ripley does mm. in Alien. And that because of difficulties with the special effects and, and production problems, um, the film ultimately had um, a kind of an immediate and continued focus on Mac as its lead character.
3: Well... Um, the production was uh, started in June 1981 in Alaska They did some shooting there um, Interior shooting uh, began two months later So in August in Los Angeles And then there was a gap where they were going to British Columbia To do the outdoor shots Because it would be snowing at that time And it was during that break that Carpenter viewed all of the footage that he'd done And was unhappy with a lot of the results He found the film overlong and lacking tension So he recut a lot of the scenes that were overlong He cut out a lot more and then he went away for a weekend to rewrite the script and one of the major changes between the original script and Carpenter's rewrites was that Mac uh, became the lead early on rather than just assuming that increased responsibility as the film went on.
0: And it's interesting that um, they actually shot the bulk of the film in Los Angeles in six artificially frozen sound Mm. stages. They refrigerated all of those sets and they shot it during a heatwave in Los Angeles. So all of the actors on the doco talk about having to like rug up to be in there and then like remove all of their clothes on lunch break.
1: I think bringing it up, um, speaking about sets and stuff, I think the production design on this film is so good. Yeah. Like I totally believe the interiors are in that cold... I agree It's on
0: it. like alien level good Yeah yeah
1: It's really good um, John Lloyd was
3: the production designer He worked with Carpenter as well On Big Trouble in Little China So the, he was the production designer John Dwyer was the set decorator They went on to do some Really terrible work They worked <laughs> together Luke we worked We watched A couple of weeks ago They both did Jaws the Revenge <laughs> Which we watched the other day, and it is awful. It is (laughs)
0: terrible, but fun. Alright, so anyway, um, Windows comes back to where Bennings is performing the autopsy, and he finds blood, um, and he sees Bennings being assimilated. He races to fetch Mac, but by then the creature has vanished. This is when they all walk outside, and I have to say, this is probably my favourite part of the thing, and it's the part where Bennings is sitting there, and his hands are fucked, and he's like looking at them. In the middle of them all outside. And he (laughs) lets out that scream...
3: That's when I just think Donald Sutherland. Yeah, yeah. Invasion of the yeah, Body Snatchers. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yes. That's what I. That's what I think. It's the same kind of shot.
1: Yeah. And obviously, this movie has I, a lot. A so lot.
0: powerful, though. Such a gothic image.
1: On my on my notes for this session, it's like the turning into the thing just before he gets burnt by Kurt so it's genuinely unnerving. The other night when I was watching it, I, I was like actually kind of. My, my toes sort of cringe at that. Yeah. I mean, all the time.
0: Well, I hadn't remembered it. And so when it came on, when yeah. I was watching it, I actually just watched it last night. It was... I was just... Oh, chills went down my yeah. spine. That, I thought it was such a powerful moment. It's such a good
1: yeah, moment of sound design as well. Like okay. yeah. yeah.
3: It is really good. And the other thing about this scene is that there's a new set of colours. It's all been white or mm. black at this point. Um, the light around the base in the background is a very, very... Crystal clear blue mm. color, mm-hmm. and then there's the fire, uh, fiery orange color. Um, so those two colors are really very much introduced into the movie at this point, kind of. And they come like one
0: it. after the other. Mm. It goes from there to when they're they're burning the bodies, and the camera pans up, and we see the red smoke. Mm. Um, and it is it's it's a vivid, it's really a vivid, beautiful. Moment. Yeah,
3: beautiful colours.
0: Mac then um, is uh, with someone. It might be fugues, and he uh, asks to be alone, and that's when he sees Blair running from the chopper. Mm-hmm. He goes to the chopper and finds it's been tampered with. He then hears gunshots and finds Blair is uh, has kind of barricaded himself in the control room and he's destroying all the radio and the machinery in there. Um, someone comes in and might be the cook and says he's killed the dogs. Um, and then we get that validated again when we see Clark go in and he sees that. I think he's axed one of them. He uses yeah. an axe. So this is when the movie suddenly gets very loud. This is the first stress scene, the first real interesting psychological interplay between the characters, um, and it's where that, that level of mistrust that's mm. been building... Um, that started with tiny innuendos about the government, is now pretty much closer to home.
3: Blair's anxiety could be about his findings or it could be him being taken over by a thing. Um, We're not sure yet. You just think he's gone crazy at this point, whatever it is. Um, Interestingly, in this scene, he still tells Mac to watch Clark. So he's still
0: casting doubt on others, which is something a thing would do as well that's true and um, I, I think it's nice that the crew try to reason with him at first and he just starts firing bullets mm-hmm. um, so then ultimately they have to they disarm him with I think it's a tabletop they come they kind of ambush him and throw, get him on the ground with that they then lock him in the tool shed and they give him a shot uh, Blair tells Mac he doesn't know who to trust and as you say he warns him about Clark again outside the men group and they have their first conversation their first kind of relaxed conversation about trust and one of them says so how do we know who's human
2: If I was an imitation, a perfect imitation, how would you know if it was really me?
0: The doctor suggests a blood serum test. Mac tells his men to keep an eye on Clark. So I don't think he's convinced that Blair's infected at this point. Mm. Later, when Blair asks him to be let outside, I know I shouldn't skip ahead, but I didn't think he was um, convinced then either. I think that there's a fundamental character difference between Blair and Mac. Mm. Blair, his immediate reaction is, well, let's just all suicide to stop this thing and Mac's far more optimistic and less nihilistic about it and I think that's why Mac doesn't want him with the men even if he isn't infected he wants to find a way out that doesn't involve them losing their lives. but what we get to now is the the tampered blood bag scene. I think it's a great scene. they, they walk into the storage room they open it up because they need they need storage blood. Um, In order to test against the alien blood, they think there'll be some kind of reaction. And that's how they'll work out who is infected and who isn't. Only to find that all of these blood bags have been tampered with, that there is no blood. They work out that only the doctor and the captain have access to the keys. Both men deny having tampered with it. And that's when sort of things become a bit violent. Windows goes for that gun. And is this also where, this is where the captain surrenders his authority? Mm.
3: It was the point in the original script obviously, where somebody takes the lead role. And at this
0: point, the captain's mad. been useless and should <laughs> give up authority because he's just this little wet mop that's crying that all of this is happening. Yeah, he doesn't seem
1: that's... very captainly, like, the whole no. the whole film. He, and he, I feel like he just sort of gave it up. He like, reminds me of the bit. pilot in Flying High. Yeah.
0: yeah that's what I get yeah,
3: from him. Yeah. He's about as useful.
1: He's um, got a really cartoony kind of face. He does, he? yeah. Like plasticine kind of thing.
0: Mm. I think there's a bit here where... One of the one of the characters says is they suggest he take over and he says I'm not up to it. Norris,
3: know? who has um what a, a pacemaker, yeah, or, or high blood <laughs> pressure or something like that. Um, so he that's the reason that he turns it down. He says I I don't think I'm up to it.
0: Well, I heard on the documentary the actor say that in his mind he. Th- because they, they, apparently the actors would have a lot of discussions about, do you know you're the thing? When do you know? When do you switch from being it to yeah. me? And the actor said that he liked to think of it as a bit of a slow burn process where mentally you could feel yourself being completely taken over and obliterated by this thing that was eating at you. And he likes to think that his character forfeited the opportunity to be captain because he already had started to feel that he was ultimately changing.
2: Norris, I can't see anybody objecting to you. I'm sorry, fellas, but
0: I'm not up to it. Oh wow! Um, and I thought that was a really mm. interesting perspective. And also, I mean, if you, you look never at it, would have got that, <laughs> no, <laughs> but if, oh, you no. Look, no. if you look at it in that perspective, then uh,
3: as happens with Mac during the course of the movie, is there's a lot, there's a lot of um, focus on him when he becomes the leader. Mm. So Norris being the thing deflecting
0: that focus
3: was a good move.
0: Yeah, I agree. Mm. By the thing. Mm. Um, Alright, so um, this leads to uh, a, a. Obviously, Mac takes the reins, which he'd pretty much been doing anyway. I mean, I'd always well, felt as if he was in charge.
3: Childs goes for it. No, well, that's due to the changes in the script that Yeah, he, he had. I mean, it's true. Um, look, some of the things that would point that he was already in charge. He was the first one on screen when the Nor- Norwegians came towards the base. He took charge during the scene in which the dog thing assimilated the other dogs mm. um, he was present during the search of the Norwegian compound oh, yeah. and when they went to the ship um, he was the one that saw Blair bust up the helicopter and he took charge in the scene when Blair went crazy so all of those things he's already been the lead Yeah. this here was the point in the, the original script before John Carpenter's changes where he was given that role
0: yeah, yeah. and this is where he says I know I'm human
2: If you were all these things and you just attack me right now so some of you were still human
0: and i thought that mac that was a, a fantastic thought it hadn't occurred to me and i thought it was perhaps as close to optimism as this film gets
3: that was john carpenter's
0: written line i know i'm human i really like it you know and it's it's a it, there's something to the idea of the only thing that's keeping mac alive is that there's at least one other uninfected member mm. of the group, and that's why the alien can't show its cards and just come out. So that one other person, even if it was one, two, three, who knows how many, they're all keeping each other alive by not being infected.
3: So in the original script, that whole speech that he does outside took place in the rec room, which is our favourite room, as we oh, yeah. established. <laughs> Um, And it started off with From what we know This thing likes to go one on one So we stick together as much as possible In twos and threes Then he goes on to discuss the possible tests So all of that original part of that um, the, The first part of what's in the final film This
2: thing doesn't want to show itself It wants to hide inside an imitation It'll fight if it has to But it's vulnerable out in the open If it takes us over and it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it, and
3: then it's won. So there was none of that mm. in the original one. Um, so obviously, and it didn't. It took place inside rather than outside. So there are a couple of really good changes there. Mm, absolutely. Because that that scene is very pivotal. Yeah. Uh, very memorable. It's one of the better scenes in the movie.
0: So, from there, um, Mac orders Fuchs to continue Blair's work um, and he puts the three suspected infected members of the crew, Gary, Dr. Cooper and Clark, under guard.
3: Um, This is... uh, I've made a note in my notes that this is the first scene in which I really noticed the score of the film, um, which has been ambient for a long time. Say the name
0: of the composer. (laughs) Uh, Oh,
3: Ennio Morricone. Yeah. (laughs) um, Who's obviously done a lot of very big scores
0: mm. um, and he his scores combined with the electronic pulses that Carpenter wrote and they're very very clearly Carpenter score. it's a very clear Carpenter score
3: well John Carpenter chose him because he got married to Song Barrio yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right yeah. um, he was most famous for the spaghetti westerns of Sergio Leone fistful of dollars for a few dollars more the good the bad and the ugly once upon a time in the west as well as cinema paradiso days of heaven the mission the untouchables bugsy and he did uh, Tarantino's most recent film, The Hateful Eight, which also starred Kurt
1: Russell. Which is, it bears a lot of resemblance to the thing and in a lot of ways. Really?
3: Yeah. And this is the first movie that Carpenter did not do the score for. First first of his own movies that he didn't do the score for. Which weird. is the first of a, the first of a lot. Um, the
1: it's thing. weird that it still feels so Carpenter-like.
3: Yeah. Well, that was uh, uh, Annio Morricone, I think he um, said that's his... Yeah. Thing and he uh, wrote it that way because he thought it would fit with a lot of the stuff that Carpenter's has done. Yeah, yeah, but it was um, yeah. It's uh, obviously it's been in the background a bit more, but now it's uh, kind of coming along and being a bit more pulsating. The score, yeah, it's a really good score.
0: It is a really good score. I don't think it's a great score. I mm. think it does its job, but I don't know that I would you know say it was up there with psycho and Jaws it's not there's no real like there's no real anthem for when the thing comes in the way that no. there is for those films but nor should there be because <laughs> well that's what you say Damien it's not one of those stories so anyway, that tells I'm you when you're supposed to feel something like, I get knocked out. <laughs> how would that go <laughs> <laughs> boom, 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 boom. <laughs> boom 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 <laughs> boom boom the things here <laughs> Okay, so anyway, um, then we get Mac leaving his audio recording, which he's obviously doing for posterity because he's, at this point, not too sure that anyone's going to make it out. And he says, nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. And then I thought what he did was cut out the we're all very tired. Like, mm. he, he rewound it and, and recorded over that and changed it instead to there's nothing else we can do, just have to wait, which I think is, is more optimistic. Again, it, it, it speaks to this character's... He thinks more constructively and isn't applying doomsday ideas to this whole situation.
1: It's weird that he rewound it and went over it, so it had a different well, feeling. Is like, that what? No, happened? no. I, I think yeah? you're right. I, ju- I just think that that's such a it's a weirdly deep character trait. You know? like <laughs> it is,
0: yeah. and it's kind of not really explored any further than that.
1: Do you feel like Kurt Russell's character would have been the kind of person to record a diary entry? <laughs>
0: I don't know. I, mean, I feel it, strange about it. It feels heavily ripped from the last part of Alien.
1: Or just like any film where they're just trying to have some sort of exposition, like yeah.
0: I don't know. It just I mean, look, you can imagine anybody, I suppose, if they were faced in a life or death death situation, yeah. wanting to have something to leave. Um, maybe yeah. uh, maybe they were going for a sequel. Did I really got need? Got a good it? reception. Someone could find Max. Yeah. Radio. Recording. Yeah.
1: Like I don't think it gave us any new information. No, I
0: probably didn't need that scene. Yeah. Following on from that, um, the the piece of clothing that was left in the kitchen, which um, we have to assume the alien left it in the kitchen and didn't know where a piece of clothing would naturally go, so he just put it there.
1: But there were was that was that underwear?
0: Underwear. It's long johns, I think. Yeah, right. But Kurt Russell's looking at them and he notices that the name tag has been removed. <laughs> What are you laughing at? L- Long Johns. Isn't that what they are? <laughs> That's a funny word. Just, no, I was just laughing at um, Anyway, um, so yeah, the name tag's been removed, so we know the alien's actually quite clever, and I mean, we've already pretty much established that from the opening scenes with the dog. But um, Fuchs has a really good idea here. He's still obviously carrying on Blair's work, and he suggests that everyone... A
2: small particle of this thing is enough to take over an entire organism. And everyone should prepare their own meals. And I suggest we only eat out of cans.
0: So they're already thinking in a very paranoid way because they have to. Fuchs is left alone. The power shuts off. He lights a fuse and he sees a shadow cross um, the hallway. He then finds Mac's jacket ripped in the snow outside. Now, I assumed immediately that somebody, and especially obviously after the blood test, that this was the alien framing Mac and the reason I think he would do that is because as the leader and the shrewdest member of the crew, he represents the biggest threat to the alien. Well,
3: that's right. And that's the, the kind of focus going on to the leader that Norris didn't want.
0: Yes. Fuchs then goes missing. So he can't even report mm. about seeing Max things. The that's men... the last time we see him. Yes. Yeah, that's the last time. So then the men pair up and they all um, go on a search party. Max's team checks on Blair during this time and he asks if he's seen Fuchs. Blair has made a noose, which is just hanging yeah. there. <laughs> this scene's heartbreaking. You reckon? Yeah. I, I it love funny. it. I love it. <laughs> I, I, Yeah,
1: it's, it's, it was a really perfect looking rope. It as well, was. Like it was, wasn't it? I love the way it's
3: played. I think it's really good.
0: I half expected him to kind of turn around holding a martini. I don't know why. <laughs> this is when I I mentioned earlier. I don't I don't get the impression Mac is worried about Blair being infected. Blair's actually really genuinely asking. Can I please mm. be let back inside? It sounds
3: like a reasonable request.
0: It does. Yeah, and we know obviously the alien can mimic and imitate. Um, but I guess because there isn't too much. Humanity Or sentimental moments in the film The few that there are We mm. really notice And yeah. that is a real human moment Where he is just asking to be mm. let out Yeah,
3: I feel sorry for him When he shuts the, shuts the window Leaves him there
0: Yeah Anyway, the men do find Fuchs uh, Well, they sort of find him he, They find his glasses And a burnt body Which they mm. assume to be him um, That's when Mac notices The lights to his shack are on And that somebody has either been in there Or is currently in there him and his team don't return for 45 minutes, and we see we see the men sort of kind of very anxiously waiting for them, wondering where they've gone, all inside the station. <coughs> Nails returns alone. He was a member of Mac's um, team, and he says that he found the torn clothes of Mac and cut him loose because they were obviously on a tow line searching through this real hostile weather. So he found a patch of clothing that reads R.J. MacReady. Yes. And we already know at this point that the alien uh, has been removing tags. Mm. So it it just doesn't make sense that uh it would have just been the alien or, or Mac assimilating and then his clothes being left there. Why wouldn't the alien have removed the name tag if it had Mac?
3: They're saying that this uh piece of clothing was hidden in Mac's
0: uh Well, that's true. Yeah. Uh,
3: and the he, but why so he would didn't it hide it well enough. Yeah. Someone found it during this search, and uh, that's why they think that he's the thing.
0: Yeah. When they're all uh, having this conversation, um, the doorknob starts to turn. This is back at... It, it's funny because it's such a, um,
3: a little thing to be circumstantial evidence to be accusing someone of such a thing, which is kind of like <coughs> the Salem witch trials.
0: Yeah, you're right, actually. I hadn't thought of that, but there are a yeah. lot of... Yeah, you can be accused of
3: being a witch for any number of reasons. Yeah. You can be accused of being a thing for any number of reasons as well. And you can't disprove it. Modern day sci-fi. Well, yeah, absolutely. It just ultimately leads to your death in both circumstances. Yeah. So anyway, um, the men... But we prefer that he wasn't a
0: thing. Well, we we know he's not because his blood test later shows that he's not. Well, we know he's not
3: later. But at this point, we prefer that he wasn't a thing.
0: Yeah, we're in his corner. Yeah,
3: we're in his corner because he's the lead. And... Uh, Kurt Russell's really good in the role. Very He's magnetic.
0: great. Mm. Yeah, I, I like to call him Mrs. Goldie Hood. I think
1: it's. I would say it's Kurt Russell's best performance film.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's the best film for me that I've seen him in. It's the one that I would mm. go to if I, when I think of him. That and overboard. and, uh, and the remake of the Poseidon Adventure. The re- oh,
1: he drowns in that full on, eh? The remake of yeah. the, the, the What Poseidon. <laughs> yeah. Poseidon? Poseidon. I haven't sorry. watched that.
0: Uh, should I? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> The men debate about whether or not to open this door, and um, then they eventually uh, decide to. Mac's standing there with a lit dynamite and fuse. He threatens to blow the place up unless he's permitted entry. Nora stops breathing and is taken to the infirmary. Mac is, um, at this point, arguing with the men, trying to convince them that he's not infected. Um, And this is where we come to the very, very, very famous spider head. Sequence. Mm. So, Doc is trying to start Norris's heart when Norris's chest caves in mm. and turns into a giant set of teeth that bite off the doctor's arms. His body, uh, Norris's body, warps and twists up. Hearing the ruckus, the men storm in and Mac sets the flamethrower on it. So, by Mac killing it, I mean, this is pretty much we can assume now like he's not infected. He's yeah, not
3: although lie. one thing does happen to counter that in, in here, and I think it's Palmer points out that the head's gotten away Yeah, and as we come to find out in the blood test Palmer is a thing that's true so he oh, wow. so actually it could just be one thing trying to save themselves by saying oh the yeah throwing throwing them off yeah yeah to, to obviously you would think someone isn't a
1: thing if they're pointing out another thing so It's I such think an
0: intelligent
1: like alien isn't it it is yeah, yeah it's
0: really cool I think this part though is where the special effects are most tested. This was sort of part of it was like, I felt As like then they it don't when,
3: work anymore.
0: I think they work.
1: I think the chest is very obvious, but I think it's such yeah, a yeah, shock the chest. that you like, it is a shock. Yeah, <laughs> like, like even the other day when I watched it and I was watching it with somebody who hadn't seen it before and, and I was like, Oh my God, I love this bit. And she had no idea that would have, would have happened. Like yeah. just that is so crazy. And it's such a cool idea.
2: Clear!
0: My mum and she gasped. Yeah. You know, it, it
1: is a jump moment. You don't really spend a lot of time on how long it takes to transfer in yeah. the film. And yeah. Then that scene kind of like does it so quickly.
0: But I think a lot of the special effects scenes are a bit disorienting because of the way they're lit, because yeah. of how fast the cuts are. Um, and I think that they, I think that is a, a good thing. Um, they incinerate the whole thing and then accept the uh, head. <laughs> and then <clears throat> these spider legs shoot out of the head and it starts to crawl out of the room, and that's where we get the thing's only real joke, certainly the only one that's memorable, where one of the characters says, You've
2: got to be fucking kidding.
0: Kurt Russell just slowly turns around. (laughs) This thing's just pottering out of the room. So (laughs) So that's that's definitely the most iconic special
3: effect from the movie. Yeah. Um, The the spider head. I think it's the most
0: well-remembered. Yeah. And uh, after this episode, Mac insists everybody gets tied up, this then leads into the blood test scene. <clears throat> mm. Which um, is another great scene. Mm. Yeah, it is a great scene. Mac explains that he believes every singular organism of the thing can exist on its own and is completely contained within its own built... has has its own inbuilt survival mechanisms. Uh, and he gets the idea that alien blood will try to defend itself if it feels threatened. So he makes each man draw blood, he heats up a piece of wire and threatens uh, threatens to... Uh, threatens the blood with heat from the flamethrower is Mm. that correct yeah um and all you can hear in the scene is the wind outside there's no score and it's extremely effective and i just wanted to um talk about cameron you mentioned about the themes and the metaphor of the thing yeah and one of the ones i came across was the uh aids crisis did you read about this damien I did a little. So Carpenter mentions that in 1982 when this film came out, the U.S. Um, was just finding out about AIDS and it was just turning into a crisis.
2: Now, it also, occurred at the same time, there's a little article in the paper I remember reading about some kind of new disease that was occurring. That's right. It was called AIDS. Yeah. It was and just... people were dying and it was a very weirdly similar and dynamic <laughs> to what we were doing because you couldn't tell. That's who right. had it. That's right. They, they was, they, it was just the beginning of the AIDS being discovered in the press, and uh, it really was spooky because they didn't know what was causing it, they didn't know who had it, they didn't know how somebody got it. and uh, You would actually have to do a blood test to yeah. find out, which is what your character eventually does in the picture.
0: And the characters undergoing this blood test, I thought, was really interesting, because at the time, can you imagine how many people would have been sitting in doctor's rooms, nervously awaiting results of their blood test to find out if it was positive it certainly um captures that feeling of 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 being contaminated and infected is kind of a paranoid feeling and I thought it was really interesting that Carpenter mentions this and that for him at least there was some sort of allegory there between the two things
3: and do you think he intended that from the outset
0: I don't know if he intended to do it, but he certainly um, he certainly thinks now that mm. it had a bearing on the film and on his reasons for making it at the time. Whether it was conscious at the time, I don't know. Mm. This leads to uh, the reveal that Palmer is infected.
3: Well, the, the test um, went about a very different way in the original script um, because in the final film, Dr. Copper is dead straight away. Right. after being attacked by Norris in the previous scene so he was actually the one who in the original script uh, he got tested first he he gathered the blood samples got tested first passed the test and then he was the one instead of uh, I think it's Windows in this movie who's guarding the guys who are tied up he was the one who guarded the guys who are tied up but Carpenter rewrote it and he's dead after he gets attacked by Norris' chest and his hands cut off and everything so his hands I guess weren't cut off in the Original script,
0: yeah,
3: yeah,
0: and this is where um, we have our full body burn in the film, which mm. is where you know he comes out of the thing and onto the snow and he's fully lit up. And mm. interestingly, in the Thing from Another World, that's considered to be the first body burn that was ever captured on film. So I think it's really nice that Carpenter found the way to get that back mm. into the 1982 one. Yeah, well, I didn't know that. Um, they check Gary the captain's last. At this point, I think Mac is pretty convinced that he is infected. But they've also been. Uh, doing the Mac and Childs kind of relationship at this point. And mm.
3: Childs, obviously, got tied up after Mac put a gun to his head and he said, oh, I guess you're serious. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they've really played up that kind of relationship as well, but obviously Childs passes the test.
0: Yes, and um, Gary is very annoyed at this point. But so there's a
3: really strange cut there. I don't know if you noticed. It's, it's Childs and Gary tied up together on these chairs next to each other and Childs starts bumping about and going, get me out of here, cut me loose. So he's next to uh, Gary, they're both tied up, and then it cuts to the same shot from a very, very slightly different angle, and Charles has gone from the shot and it's just Gary, and I find that cut really jarring. Mm.
0: Yeah, I hadn't noticed. mm. But I really do like this scene, I like how lively this scene is. Mm. Um, What surprised me about his reaction when he was tied up was that he suddenly got a lot of anger and gumption after having spent the whole film acting like this impotent little wet mop that just wants to have a cry about everything. It's like, oh, where did you, where did this come from? And why weren't you employing this early on when it could have done some good? He does seem rather menopausal in this. He time? does. <laughs> Actually,
1: the more you think about
0: it. Yeah. But, Crudy, I know I've
2: known him for ten years. He's my friend. You've got to burn the
0: rest of him. Remember when Matt just shoots Clark? So that's at the start of this scene. Because Clark has, we, they've set up that Clark's stolen the scalpel. Right, and then Clark goes to attack Mac with the, the scalpel before Norris this turns. Is, yeah, he's this taken is the tools. Yeah, directly after he um is kind of confronted by Childs, and there's this mm. bit of like power mm. play between them. Yeah, and he, he does not hesitate. This mm. comes back to what you were saying about yep, you're dead, bang, don't yeah, care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and it turns out that he wasn't infected. Yeah, well, um, yeah,
1: it's uh, I like, it's uh, yeah, I, did, I like that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which
0: yeah. I I guess means he was attacking Mac because he was convinced Mac was affected. Or. He, didn't want to be tied up
3: because then everybody's at
0: max mercy or maybe he was scared that he was infected or was slowly getting infected
3: well in in the mythology a thing knows that they're a thing
0: yeah but we don't know that in this film i guess we don't know that yet no so
3: the only person who remains untested now is blair and they decide to go out and give blair the test so in the film it's been about half an hour and in the timeline, I found the timeline on outpost31.com. <laughs> and it says so, it's half an hour in the film. In this timeline, it says that Blair was locked up on day three, and it's now in the very early hours of day six. Really? So he's been locked up for three days.
0: Mm-hmm. I read somewhere that the whole film took place over three days and three nights. Right. Was, okay. But I don't know if that's true or not. I can't well, remember yeah, I this, this, Do you uh, have they a timeline, though. So <laughs> <don't they> we're <laughs> going by apparently the clock
3: on the wall in the rec room. Oh, where well. Pretty much yeah. everything happens. All the fun stuff. The blood test scene is is really, really great. The other thing is uh, that kind of brings us back to the shadow on the wall from earlier, the dog walking through the compound. For years, apparently, it was pretty much accepted that the shadow belonged to Norris, who was revealed as a thing uh, just before and who led to Mac tying up the rest of the team. And
0: Norris is the one whose stomach becomes a mouth.
3: Yes, um, but some analysis by one of the film's fans, his name's Todd Cameron, went over the outline of the shadow and the features of both Norris and Palmer, who's revealed in the test scene to be a thing. Uh, He determined that the shadow most likely belonged to Palmer due to the tighter structure of Palmer's face matching the reasonably defined shadow. Do you have thoughts on who that shadow could possibly have been? Because it is quite tight around the neck and obviously Norris is a little
0: bit flabbier. Yeah, I mean, look, it could be. I, I, for some reason, as I said, first thought it was Clark and kind of settled on that idea. But, I, I mean, like, I've... Clark doesn't have all the hair, though. It's no, that's true. Present in the shadow. But researching this film, there are so many people that have analysed it to mm. death. I yeah. mean, there's that scene about the keys where, at one point, Windows, um, he he drops... You can hear him drop a set of keys to indicate that maybe he tampered with the blood. Right. I mean, people found that sound effect oh, wow. in, the, in the track and said, well, this proves this. So there's, I think, there's a, I think the film is set up like a riddle and there's so many different ways that it could be interpreted. There's
3: another one in this scene as well, in the blood test scene. Um, there's a theory that Mac may be a thing mm-hmm. at this point in the movie. Um, You'd never see him draw his own blood. Right. But I think that falls down because you would have assumed that the other crew members would have brought that up. Yeah, that's true. Because he's in the room the entire time. Yeah. Um, but it is a theory that he may be a thing at that point in the film
0: Yeah, Mac, as we say, goes to give Blair the test in the tool shed And he leaves Childs to guard the station The team find the door to the tool shed open And Mac notices loose floorboards under his feet They lift them up and find a tunnel uh, They find that Blair has been making a spaceship Using parts from the chopper that he tampered with And realise that he has been assimilated So what did we think of this moment?
3: I think the idea of the tunnelling underneath is uh, really interesting. Again, it's getting more and more claustrophobic, even though we've been inside for the majority of the last half hour.
2: Mm.
1: It's, it's getting more and more com- yeah. uh, that claustrophobic. That ship looked
0: really small. I did not <laughs> yeah. know how Blair was going to get into <laughs> that, that was, ship. That's,
1: that the production but design of the ship, not so
0: good. Yeah, maybe it used to be a bit bigger. And also, it was a bit hard to swallow that all of the parts mm. to this ship <laughs> would be around for him to make it. I mean, uh, this is obviously actually. There's advanced. a lot of stuff in these tunnels. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, and why are those tunnels there? And I mean, yeah, I don't know. I I, I thought at this point it was it, it was testing the limits of plausibility the a, a bit. The yeah,
3: that's a very quick. Maybe three days. Who knows. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Maybe he did, I don't know. We don't really ever get to see what the alien can do no, except for attack I and run. I feel
3: like the movie loses a little bit at this point. Me too. Yeah, I the feel ending like it is not as well realised as the rest of the movie.
0: Yeah, I feel like it. There's, there was an ambiguity through mm. the film that was really nice and here we start to get quite specific and a lot of our, um, you know, ideas... I feel like there's a lot of
3: unanswered questions still. <clears throat> Obviously there is throughout the movie, but I feel like there's... Yeah some things that happen at the end which uh, you start to wonder exactly what happened to that character, what happened to this character
0: Mm. and now this is where I think probably the film gets its most disorienting when one character notices Childs moving outside having left his post at the station Um, and then the generator is turned off and they have a discussion about whether they're being freezed out, Um, the thing just wants to go back to sleep and wait for uh, when his odds are a little bit better Mm. Uh, and Max says
2: whether we make it or not, we can't let the thing freeze again. Maybe we'll just warm things up a little around
0: here. The characters have completely given up. They don't care about their lives anymore. They realise that the more important thing is just completely wiping this thing out, not letting it go to sleep in the ice, um, and that they are going to essentially surrender their lives in, in, in aid of that. It's quite
1: moralistic as well at that point. You're right, actually, Which Yeah. Is- Accepting that there's a which greater is, value than yourself. Which is and, generally devoid throughout the rest of the film. Wow. Yeah.
0: And it suits Mac, though, to be the one that has it. I mean, it's a, it's a very dark, optimistic view.
1: Yeah.
0: Anyway, the men set fire to the ship Blair was making, and they start rigging the entire station to blow. Um, so, as we say, by this time we have to assume that the men are resigned to death and are only interested in stopping the alien. The men set fire to several rooms and areas to keep the temperature up and heat so to I love. That.
3: love these shots. Yeah. Um, when they're setting fire to them, it's down this corridor basically, yeah. and it's uh, shot one way as you see Kurt Russell um, shot t- tracking towards him as you see Kurt Russell chuck these explosives, it light them and chuck them into this room, and they um, you then switch and you're tracking away from the explosion in that room that he's just chucked it into, and so there's a series where there's two or three explosions in a row. It's just really, really
1: well shot scene. Yeah, well shot sequence back and forth. And fire, I, fire plays such a large part in this film. It does, and it like must have been really dangerous. It kind of makes me feel like the cast members are like cavemen. If yeah. that makes sense throughout the film, like like they're just so having to do one task to sort of get away from this thing, and that just that just always made me feel like. And just the focus on fire was interesting. I think. Yeah. Well.
3: well, he he had a big budget. Yeah, as yeah. well compared yeah. to his previous he'd just done Escape from New York which had a lot of explosions big action movie and this was double the budget of that mm. so he's obviously it's reflected on the screen that he had a reasonable budget mm. um, what 13 14 million dollars
0: and one of the actors I think it's the one who plays Fuchs in the documentary describes how much fun it was to be with
2: that cast and that director and that crew I mean you had like 60 little boys with helicopters and flamethrowers and guns and a monster and we're up in the arctic and i mean it was a gas man it was like it was like going out and playing cops and robbers when you were a kid it was just it was
3: fantastic and you you get the feeling john carpenter would have loved doing it yeah because he looks like he's always having fun
0: yeah um so anyway uh the men set fire to several rooms uh and they find the generator is gone He's like, no, is it on? And then Gary keeps going, it's gone. It's like, can you just tell us, is it there? Is it burnt? Has someone pissed on it? Just tell us what happened. The
2: generator's gone. Any way we can fix it. It's
0: gone, McCready. So this is Blair who attacks him. This is, yeah, this is Blair. Right. Okay. <clears throat> Which um, leaves Mac to his own. This room. is where he puts
3: his hand over his mouth. Yeah. yeah. I like that moment. He squiggles his... It's a <laughs> jerks
0: bit, around a little bit It's a very subdued death for this film yeah. It's a very human normal but no, death it,
3: But that's one of the questions Does Gary die in this scene? Well we assume so uh, why, But why do you assume so? Because the thing isn't necessarily there to kill people It's there to assimilate them So is he transferring a part of the thing into Gary So that mm. Gary will assimilate at that point That's what I would think is happening Yeah. Not, in fact, not it's Gary interesting dying that Which leaves open the question What happens to Gary?
0: Yeah, and it is a bit <laughs> weird that they... <laughs> it is a bit weird that he doesn't try to assimilate him, that it is just, it appears to be just a murder. Where's <laughs> Gary. Is that what you love? at? Yeah. Two paws and i lost <laughs> it's what uh, happened
1: uh, to Gary. <laughs> 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 <The
2: kidney's crying. laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. Anyway,
0: so what happens at this point? Um, Blair has attacked. It's, he's attacked. He attacks Knowles, doesn't he? Or is it Childs? No, it's Knowles. Knowles. Yeah. Child <clears throat> disappeared at this point. Mac is busy rigging shit up to like blow up the place. <laughs> he calls out, and nobody answers. He's immediately suspicious. Turns around. And he starts walking ominously towards where we saw Knowles get attacked. So this was um, this is, I think you know one of the more tense moments of the film where Mac is walking through and we're not quite sure, um, you know. Well, we know what we know; it's going to come out, but we don't know quite when. And it comes mm. out with um, a real hurrah moment. It goes through the floorboards and and tremendous like, force, like tremors. Yes, yeah, exactly. And then um, appears and it's the biggest monstrosity yet. Um, I didn't think it was the most powerful one. In fact, I felt like this was one of the more
3: disorienting... Certainly, um, I guess, with the ease at which it is defeated as well. For for a final showdown, it's a bit of a letdown compared to
0: some of the others. You're right. It's a bit rushed. That's true. Yeah. And this is um, where I noticed lots and lots of vaginal folds. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I mean, I think it's particularly horrifying for gay men, this film. (laughs) Mac kills it very, very swiftly. Yeah. And sets the place on fire uh, at the same time, simultaneously. And then he kind of walks all beleaguered and battled um, and then goes and sits on the snow. And that's when we have the miraculous reappearance of Childs.
1: Where were you, Childs?
0: <clears throat> where indeed.
1: Do we know about the scale of them? Did they use models for those kind of special effect shots where things are getting blown up, like buildings and stuff? No, do we he know actually
0: anything?
1: blew it up. Okay, I was wondering, because if yeah. not, it was... And the reason I know
0: that is because you know when they go over the Norwegian site and it's all burnt, yeah, yeah, that's that camp. He oh. just shot it yeah, after. Yeah, that's yeah, that's
1: right. I did <clears> that.
0: Yeah. So uh, apparently, Carpenter was very, very good. He's a very good economist with his films, and I mean, I think it works great. It doesn't. It doesn't look like the same site to me. I don't know if that's because of the way it was shot or if is they moved things about. Is this Carpenter's
1: most expensive film budgetary? Uh, at that point, it was.
3: Yeah. Um, I'm sure it's not now. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was one of the reasons that they were able to cut costs. So originally Universal had said $8 million. Yeah. And then the production department said it's going to cost $17 million. Um, so some of the things that were cut, several exterior sets were cut, um, meaning that the team had to, uh, brave the cold for a lot of the exterior sequences rather than shooting on a soundstage. Benning's original death scene was, uh cut down, it was uh, supposed to cost $2 million just for his death, Um, so it was cut down by $1.5 million, Uh, obviously no separate Norwegian camp was made, Um, the Universal originally had given $200,000 for creature effects, Uh, it actually turned out to be $1.5 million, Mm -hmm. and also being an ensemble cast, all 12 actors were meant to be paid $50,000 each. Kurt Russell ended up getting paid four hundred thousand dollars. After the negotiations, the film was meant to cost eleven point four million dollars or with marketing fourteen, it ended up costing twelve point four million dollars and with marketing fifteen.
0: Well, he did pretty good given yeah. how good the film looks and how many effects are in the mm. film. Yeah, I mean, one thing you certainly can't complain about is that you know you, you don't really see anything.
3: You see, you see a lot of that money on the screen.
0: You do. You see, yeah, a lot of it. But what we get here is um, Child's ham-fisted excuse for why he wasn't stationed at the uh, station.
2: Thought well, I saw Blair. I went out after him. lost in the storm.
0: And that just doesn't seem like a Child's thing to do. Child's, this whole film, has been very self-preservational. His his attitude is much like The Thing's attitude. It's Mm. all about not going the extra mile, doing just enough to keep yourself out of fire. And then suddenly he's developed this communal-type feeling that he's going to go and grab Blair and help the collective. It doesn't really gel for me. This is further emphasised when he's saved a bottle of alcohol and he takes that swig, and when he takes that swig, we hear those dum-dum beats mm. of the score, which we've come to, at that point, connotate with the thing. And this is the most... So the thing does have a theme. Yeah, it does.
1: What? what um, isn't there a thing uh, where they talk about, does he have his nose ring in, Charles?
0: Oh, I don't know. Because
1: there's a thing about... Yeah, yeah. It so they won't do. Inorganic. You know, inorganic in matter. So they won't have like you know an earring or a nose ring or whatever. Like, and that was used in the prequel. Yeah, like a, a fair amount. So I was wondering, like, I can't remember if he had. Didn't Charles have piercings?
0: Well, Charles has,
3: has a piercing, but I'm not sure about this final I can't scene. What, I, in I, it. I don't remember. Do there's just, a lot of different theories about this last scene.
0: Yeah, one of the big ones is the that he's wearing a different coloured jacket. He was wearing a da- dark jacket throughout the whole film. Most of the characters never change their clothes. Mm. And in this scene, he's got a beige one on. And it's the one that we see actually hanging on one of the racks when at one point they're going through and you can see where the coat coats are. Kept. So I didn't even come up with that one. <clears throat> but yeah. there's um, there's a a YouTube video. Uh, Collative Learning is the guy you can mm. subscribe to. And he does the, thi- the thing film analysis. And he goes through like intensive details to try and work out some of these mysteries, who's infected when, who did mm. what. Um, and it's really, really fascinating. So we'll put the link to that in, yep. the, in the area where we... Show notes. Thank Do you him. think the filmmakers
1: um, went to that length in knowing each and every single point of reference? Do you think they really well, did?
0: Well, what's interesting is Carpenter said that this was the longest pre-production he had in a film ever. Yeah. It was delayed for a year. So he had ultimately, I think, about 18 months and uh, apparently he just exhaustively went through the script. So we might find that some of these really tiny details were intentional just in this one.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, just, I mean, I, I would believe that. It's just, a, yeah, it's just, a, it's a crazy feat to be able to kind of like... Isn't it? That amount yeah,
0: because they're so tiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess Carpenter, we don't necessarily think of as a Kubrick type filmmaker, no. who does stress about details this and is the, is why, This is
1: why I think this is his best film. It stands out <clears throat> so much to me yeah. in terms of just in- Maybe like did, sheer intelligence.
0: Did. Maybe the, to- the extra time to think it through is, that, is the reason for that. Yeah.
3: So, two of the other theories about the ending is that Mac uh, very obviously breathes, breathes out air because it's so cold, and Childs does not. Is that true? That's mm. largely down to lighting. Yeah. Um, in uh, analysis, people say, okay, yeah, it's the way that he's lit. He does, you can see a little bit of breath, but, yeah, not much. Anyway, there's no reason to think that the thing wouldn't breathe out air. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, secondly, Childs doesn't stop to, take, <coughs> to think about taking a drink from the bottle that Mac holds him. Er, yes. Gives him. Um, despite them all having been warned earlier mm. to prepare their own food and not take anything from anyone else. But and
0: despite Childs being like very protective of himself and mm. not putting himself in harm's way.
3: I mean, there's another one there that uh, obviously Mac had been making Molotov cocktails... Just previous to that, so it could might not be alcohol, or it might be gasoline or something yeah. that is handed him, and he doesn't react when he drinks it. And at that point, Mac laughs. Yeah. So does he know that he's a thing? Oh, well. I mean, but it's all just mm. conjecture. And nobody, I think that's nobody
1: knows, and nothing's ever been revealed. Yeah, he and that's the film strength, strength that he doesn't. He never really cared, or something. Not or that or he... he doesn't I don't know. think he never
3: really cared. He, he refused to talk about the movie after the, react, the response that it got. Uh-huh.
1: Um, and he
3: doesn't want to give anything away about it, I guess. And, um, That's why a lot of people think he's lying about a stuntman doing
1: the. Uh,
0: and the conversation that Mac and Charles have, their last conversation, is perhaps the most nihilistic part of the film.
1: fire got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though.
2: Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we should. If we've got any surprises for each other, I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. Well, what do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while?
0: See what happens. Because mm. it's essentially Matt going. Well, we're too fucking tired to fight. If one of us is, so fuck it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. just sit here and drink and die. <laughs> and it's it's an extremely dark, almost angry pl- note for the film to end on. Oh uh, yeah.
1: Uh, do you think this film is stronger for ending on that note? Me too. That's the best yeah. thing about this ending. And um, it
0: suits the whole film.
3: But if the movie had been shot today. You would, uh, it would have the two survivors there, and then you'd hear a helicopter approaching just in time to take them <laughs> yeah, away. For sure. You're right. And we'd know they had been saved, but yeah. Carpenter didn't do that, and he didn't do that in Halloween as well. The boogeyman gets away. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a really good ending. This is a great ending, not having them saved. They're just going to freeze to death. Yes. Um, Carpenter commented on the ending and why it contributed to the feeling of the movie which is partly responsible for its reception and he said the other ending was one shot of Kurt Russell having survived and what we would have had to do was a fade out or some type of title card or something so stylistically it would have been cheesy we did test another ending where McCready blows up the thing, he comes in and sits down by himself in the cold and then you go to black you don't have childs coming in there was absolutely no difference in audience reaction between that and the one we had so the problem was inherent. The film wasn't heroic enough. It wasn't the US hockey team beating the Russians. That's what
1: people wanted to see.
0: Yeah. Mm. And it's um, it's interesting. I don't know if anyone saw the alternate ending to the film.
1: I haven't watched it. I haven't, watched, I haven't watched any of the supplements, to be honest.
0: No. Well, I haven't seen it either. Um, and I almost didn't want to see it because I, mm. I'm married to the ending that lasts in the film. But the,
1: the,
3: uh, they did shoot a happy ending. Yep. Um, which uh, I don't think that's ever been released.
0: Yeah, that's the one I'm. Well, I read about the alternate mm. ending, and, and the version there I read is was a... he gets a blood test. Yeah. And yeah. they, oh, he's not infected. So it's a happy, happy ending. Yeah. yeah. And it wouldn't have suited the film as well as this ending does. I agree.
3: Yeah. Um, three endings were shot the one in the final film, uh, one in which Mac, now out of the compound, awaits a blood tested sermon if he's human and one in which Childs disappears into the night and leaves Mac all alone. The third one was to be the final cut ending after extensive test screenings. However, Colin Carpenter and executive producer Helena Hacker set up a last-minute meeting with Universal's motion picture president to lobby him to go back to the original ending. And just ten hours before the reels were to be printed, he agreed. Mm, Ten hours. (laughs) Ten hours later and we would have had a different movie.
0: Yeah. Mm. Um, And I think it was suggested to shoot that happier ending by his editor. He said, while well, you've got Kurt, yeah, shoot this. Well, yeah.
3: it, and just in case. It, I don't think it was yeah. really... I, I don't think Carpenter was
0: ever happy with it. I mm-hmm. think he he too was in love with the idea of ending the film um, on this kind of malevolent note yeah. where you have these two characters that you don't even know if they're friends or if they're going to try and kill each other. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't seem to matter. They're just sitting there drinking. I think there is just something really tremendous about that. Really unique.
3: Um, Carpenter's been credited with saying both that Mac is definitely not a thing and that Childs is a thing, and the other thing he's been credited with saying which refutes that is that nobody really knows at the end who is or isn't a thing, including the filmmakers. Mm. So you've got to draw your own conclusions. So uh, there's definitely no definitive answer from John Carpenter, but he didn't write it. Um, I believe Bill Lancaster, who was the writer, said that he believed... uh, I don't know if I get it right, but he believed neither of them were.
0: And a few things about Bill Lancaster: he uh, was Bert Lancaster's son, and he only wrote a couple of screenplays in his life. And he died of cardiac arrest. Bad
3: News Bears was the other big
0: one. Yeah, mm. he died of cardiac arrest at forty-nine years of age on his wife's birthday. <laughs> she was forty-eight. Right. So yeah, I thought that was a bit. Awful now that we've come to that and we've kind of decided that Child's is a thing, well, and this that is Mac we, is not that was this is the first
3: film of his feature film of his that he didn't write,
0: yeah, Carpenter. yeah,
3: yeah. And that's that brings me to something else. He actually wrote um, all of his movies, he wrote a short film when he was at the University of Southern California about uh, a bored computer worker who becomes fixated on a woman at work and follows her back to her home. Mm, that's cool, which is uh, it was said that it echoes Halloween yep. um, he wrote another uh, film that was uh, a short film the next year then he co-wrote with Dan O'Bannon Dark Star and he wrote two more screenplays he directed Assault on Precinct 13 he had one that was called Eyes that he sold to John Peters and Barbara Streisand
0: mm. Mm. Do you know what that was? Eyes of Laura Mars. The Eyes of Laura Mars. I know Barbara was originally slated to star in that, but bowed out. Thank God, because that was overwrought. I don't like it.
3: Yeah, so John Carpenter wrote Eyes of Laura Mars. um, And then obviously he wrote Halloween, uh, The Fog, and Escape from New York. um, But he did not write this movie.
0: Yeah. And I think that that's probably good. Yeah, he'd, um, he, he, he did. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think John Carpenter's necessarily a gifted writer, but he, I think he's a great director. Yeah. He had Great just,
3: visual stylist. He'd just come off of Escape from New York. He was working on a screenplay for the Philadelphia experiment. He said, which was one of those urban legend-type stories about a destroyer in World War II that supposedly time-travelled and went into a weird warp. It had a great first two acts, but no ending, no third act. It was a shaggy dog story that didn't end. I struggled with it, but I couldn't fix it. I hit the wall, and I think it spooked me on writing for a little bit. I wanted somebody who, who could hammer out a script who wouldn't have to worry about that. We met with a lot of people on the thing, and it was only when Bill Lancaster talked about what we would do with the short story that I thought, this is the guy. I thought he was just brilliant, and that script was really, really good.
0: Um, All right, so let's just talk a bit about when it came out in, um, I think it was, was it June or July of 1982? June 1982. <coughs> and um, it went to number eight. Number eight, the box office, yes. And it was in the top ten for three weeks, but rapidly fell.
3: So the, uh, the first week that it was released, it uh, got $3.1 million. Uh, that's equivalent to about $7.7 million today. So it was a very, very, very small opening. Um, ahead of it were the Spielberg produced horror movie Poltergeist in its fourth week it was already on 31 million dollars the musical Annie Star Trek 2 The Wrath of Khan Rocky 3 and Firefly um, Star Trek 2's firmly science fiction as are the top two films from that week at number two was the first week of Ridley Scott's Blade Runner which was released the same day <clears throat> the same day and it wasn't necessarily a su- success um, either yep. critically or at the box office uh, it did better than the thing um, but that debuted $6.1 million, so double the Things total. And uh, obviously, number one was uh, a very popular movie. It was E.T. Yes. Uh, that was in its third week. It had already got $45 million. It had another $13.7 million that weekend. It was number one for each of the first four weeks of the Things release.
0: Mm. And I think it's interesting that um, E.T., uh, which was a very like really a movie about a benevolent alien. The Mm. Thing was its counterpoint. Um, When The Thing from Another World was released, The Day the Earth Stood Still was released, I think a month or two before or after. So that too was competing against a film that had a benevolent alien in it. Except, of course, The Thing from Another World did tremendously well, whereas John Carpenter's Mm. The Thing did not.
3: Well, Universal owned E.T. as well as The Thing.
0: It's interesting that they put them... Well, I guess they're four them. weeks yeah. apart
3: at that point. Universal Two weeks, had, wasn't it? No, uh, E.T. had been out for three weeks already. Okay, um, But E.T., um, they thought, oh, this film's going to get the family market, it's going to get kids. So what do we like And more? so they really wanted the thing yeah. because they thought that's going to get adults. And it's kind of funny how that worked. Yeah, It, it certainly didn't. So E.T. What, went on to be the biggest, highest grossing <laughs> movie of all time. And what do we all think of E.T.? I've never
1: liked E.T., I love E.T. <laughs>
0: more than The Thing? No. Less than The Thing by a wide uh, margin? Or? Uh,
1: I would watch The Thing a lot more. Yeah. I would watch E.T. I like them both a, a fair amount. I, I, yeah, E.T. would be below The Thing. For me.
0: Well, I quite like E.T., but I agree with you. It would be below for me as well. I think mm. The Thing's much better.
3: I yeah. think people love E.T., mm. um, but uh, The Thing's obviously... It's uh, been reanalyzed later mm. as time goes on, and so people love the thing now as well. But certainly at the time, people loved ET. Yeah. So,
0: Damien, tell us about what some of the reviews were like at the time, because I didn't do any <laughs>
3: notes on that. Um Okay, so the reviews were very, very poor um, for the thing. I've got uh, you a got the few. Quite? Yeah, I've got quite a few here. The, uh, the critics, uh, obviously, the the box office was really poor. I think the thing ended up with thirteen. 0.8 million dollars or thereabouts. Some, it's somewhere between 13 and 19. I got 19. Yeah, I've, I've heard both figures. Um, Box Office Mojo, I think, shows 13.8. Vincent Canby was the film critic at the New York Times. He said, Mr Carpenter has demonstrated that he can make good, comparatively plain, old-fashioned scare movies, Halloween and effective suspense thrillers, Escape from New York, but he seems to lose his own head when he combines two or more genres as he did in The Fog and does again here. Uh, Kurt Russell Richard Dysart And other worthy people Appear on the screen But there's not a single Character to act All that the performers Are required to do Is react with shock And terror From time to time The thing is too phony Looking to be disgusting It qualifies only As instant junk
0: I didn't see much Shock or terror <clears throat> At all on their faces But <coughs> I did It was very restrained Very masculine now, No characters Start screaming And freaking out The mm. way I would They're <laughs> all very like
3: The way anyone <laughs> So to, the, to that extent, what you're saying is that their reactions are almost not true, which would certainly indicate that the characters were not well, truly written. Well,
0: I think that they're, well, not necessarily not true, but I think that they're very, um, very restrained and um, like, you know, there's, there's nothing too emotionally showy about this film. Mm. It's everyone keeps their cards close to their chest. Everyone is very much a man and yeah. can't really talk. about Oh yeah, their that's definitely true. That's
1: why I thought the Kurt Russell diary confession scene didn't play.
3: David Denby was the film critic for New York Magazine. He said this movie is more disgusting than frightening and most of it is just boring. After Escape from New York and Now the Thing I've begun to think that John Carpenter has become too humorless and visually uninventive to make good horror movies. In his recent pictures he's used dark, cluttered cramped sets and lots of clumsy scrambling and bulldogging. He's fantastic but not imaginative, grim rather than dramatically compelling. The Thing is about as impersonal as a movie can be. Maybe the monster took over the director and the crew too. It was not particularly successful
2: with audiences or fans but years later because of home video and and so forth it it got to be known a little bit better. But my reaction, I was pretty stunned by it at the time because I would made a a really grueling dark film and I just don't think audiences in 1982 wanted to see that. They wanted to to see E.T. And the thing was the opposite of that. that that. The thing that disturbed me about it was that the fans turned out hating it so much there was a famous magazine back then called Cine fantastic which was loved and hated by various directors and they had a cover a story that said is this the most hated film of all time
0: i think the fact that it does sometimes feel impersonal is one of the film's strengths
3: yeah well it adds i mean (laughs) that's that's what it is once it assimilates you you lose that kind of personality
0: but what you just read out about the the body horror Oh, I think it's the film does have a real body horror focus. I think it's almost could be like Cronenberg movie. Hmm. Um, and I, Kurt Russell actually points to that as the reason for the film's failure. He says that he thinks that <clears throat> it was just too uncomfortable.
1: A lot of the things though that bothered the audience more than the monster were the, were the poking around the monster, you know, and poking around human beings that had been burnt, and it was like we all associated to it in terms of what's uh, like gutting a deer.
0: You can pull the innards out of a deer's body, um, and people will be repelled by it. But they'll go to the, they'll go to the butcher and buy the meat. He kind of looked at it as a sort of a hypocrisy that nobody wanted to look at this disgusting stuff.
3: Well, that's one of the things that obviously the critics thought it was too gory. Mm. Um, yeah, straight away. Um, but I guess time changes that. Um, there's an article by Kent Conrad on exploded goat, and he brings up the Cronenberg thing. Um, He says, Like the nudity in Hiroshima and the shower scene in Psycho, the dog being torn apart from within is absolutely integral to the integrity of the scene and the material. David Cronenberg said that his films are graphic and gross because while an audience can imagine, with very little prompting what it looks like when somebody is stabbed or shot, James Woods growing a vagina in his stomach isn't something that belongs in the collective unconscious. It cannot be suggested. It must be seen. The assimilative activities of the thing are much the same. To object to the gore is like saying this story should not be told, since it could not be told any other way and maintain its integrity. Mm. More than any other Carpenter film, the thing is about biological rebellion, the body rebelling against itself. To do this all with shadows and smoke would be to not do it at all. Yeah, Which is really true. It's a really good explanation of why the gore is necessary. But also, I think the
0: gore was also part of the way they conceptualized the the thing. It was actually Boutine's idea. He mm-hmm. said, why don't, as it's going through its assimilation, it, it kind of morphs like out into thing. all of the things it's ever assimilated mm-hmm. in. So you get, you know, sometimes it looks insectile. Sometimes it looks like mm-hmm. other animals or other things. And that's what really makes it quite gross and disgusting, is it just looks like this amalgam of different animals. Yeah. But there was
3: happening a lot around them. Botine had just done The Howling, and Rick Baker had done American Werewolf in London, um, which had these transformative sequences of people being turned into werewolves, which bone, bones cracking and hair sprouting. Um, this film just goes one step further. And Cronenberg had done a lot of it already. He'd been doing Rabid in 1977, and um, a very bloody exploding head in scanners in 1981. So it had been on screen, and not to mention the death scenes in Halloween. Some of those were pretty gross, and especially in Friday the 13th. He's a horror filmmaker. He loves horror. Yeah, you can't take that away from it. Uh, Definitely at the time, people objected to the the gore, um, the critics. Uh, Roger Ebert said, It's a great bath bag movie. I found it disappointing for two reasons. The superficial characterizations and the implausible behaviour of the scientists on that icy outpost. The few scenes that develop characterizations are overwhelmed by the scenes in which the men are just set up for an attack by the thing. It seems clear that Carpenter made his choice early on to concentrate on the special effects and the technology and to allow the story and people to become secondary... Because this material has been done before and better, especially in the original The Thing and in Alien, there's no need to see this version unless you are interested in what The Thing might look like while starting from anonymous greasy organs extruding giant crab legs and transmuting itself into a dog.
0: Oh, fuck off, Ebert.
3: (laughs) So I think reading those reviews now, um, and you don't know how how, how many times this movie's been seen by the reviewer at the time, but you assume they've gone in there, they've seen it once, and the the most overpowering thing, especially <clears throat> it must have been that case in 1982 when it wasn't so popular. The most overpowering thing is that there's all this the, gore on the, the screen. That's too what they walk it. out remembering, yeah. and that's what they write their review but about.
0: But also, Ebert's just a pussy. I mean, he would have the production code back if he could. He actually gave the film two and a half stars out of four. Mm-hmm. It's generous of him. But anyway, um, we should say that this really, really hit Carpenter hard. Mm. This failure. Um, I think it would if you made a film that was this good and it was just ignored inexplicably because the timing I suppose of it was just not good you would feel really really disenchanted with the whole thing I mean this film deserved to have a certain degree of attention and praise that it didn't get at the time and it's really really nice that it's now undergone such a such a widespread reason. Critical revival. It has. I mean, it's on Bravo's 100 Scariest Moments. It tops sci-fi and horror lists all the time. It's something that everybody has seen at yeah. some point.
3: It was uh, nominated for two Razzies for worst musical score.
0: It's funny, oh. I, I just... Because i just watched The Shining and wrote my review of it and I was, was so floored when yeah, I... when it, Twice, isn't it? Yeah, for, ac- it develop, for and... actress and Kubrick for director. It was nominated for a couple of actual awards, though. The
3: Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Films, so the Saturn Awards. Yeah, but those awards are stupid. Best Special Effects, <laughs> and it lost to E.T. <laughs> and Best Horror Film, and it lost to Poltergeist. Which you think Carpenter would have really hated Steven Spielberg that year? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, of course. <laughs> he producing said, Poltergeist and
3: directing E.T. He
0: yeah. said about this, my career would have been different if that had been a big hit. The movie was hated, even by science fiction fans. They thought that I had betrayed some kind of trust, and the piling on was insane. Even the original movie's director, Christian Nyby, was dissing me. Uh, And I tried to look for that. I tried to look for... Yeah, yeah, I couldn't find it. I don't know what he said, but Mm. yeah. That's really awful, because this is a better film than the Nyby one, I think. I think that The Thing From Another World has a lot of merits, yeah. but it's not as good as this film. Yeah, for sure. This film has aged far better as well. I know it was yeah. closer, but it, it, you can just see it will age better than nineties film
1: Out of his, arguably his two best films, um, being Halloween and The Thing, what one do you feel has aged better? This. Yeah.
0: But I still prefer Halloween. Yeah. That's, yeah. I don't know why. I yeah. think I'm just, Is I'm really just in love it's with f- Michael like, Myers. Like, more fun? I love the feeling of that film. I love the final con- confrontation between him and Laurie. And, I don't know. I uh, I would just be more drawn to rewatch Halloween. Perhaps because it's a little bit sprightlier, I think. Yeah. The Thing is a very dark, sombre film. You don't yeah. walk out of The Thing feeling good. It kind of has a very ugly view, not just of the human body, but of the human spirit. Mm. I think you you really need to... It's sort of like why you wouldn't go on... I mean, it's not the same, but... Sort of like why you wouldn't go and pick Schindler's list over Jaws for the Revenge. You know, because it's a film that asks you to go to a very, very dark place. I mean, you much prefer The Thing. I much prefer The Thing,
1: but I would probably watch Halloween again before I'd watch The Thing again. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think The Thing will. is, in another league... Well, I mean,
0: the thing has no moment where a girl goes, I forgot my math book and my French book and all yeah, yeah, oh, book. my chemistry book. And who needs books? You don't need books.
3: I mean, the Halloween's not a <laughs> science fiction movie either. So it wouldn't really be allowed to do a lot of those uh, yeah, things but that happen in this Just
0: because movie. a movie's set in the real world doesn't mean they have to have totally artificial conversations. My point we is... we should the say thing...
1: Luke hates PJ Souls.
0: Well, I don't actually hate her. But that is her, isn't it? Yeah.
1: yeah. Is that the one that talks about her tits and that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I think that The Thing has no moments that are that transparently fake. Halloween yeah, yeah. has so many fake moments with the, the way those girls interact.
1: And, and that's the thing, you can remember the few in The Thing because for the most part it is so real. Yeah. You, know, you, you remember those few little things where it kind of hits the ear wrong and it feels like movie dialogue and all that yes. kind of thing.
3: Can we just go through um, the other horror movies in 1982 in that box office? mm mm-hmm. uh, Poltergeist a- earned uh, $76.6 million. Um, it was the eighth highest grossing movie of the year and the highest grossing horror film that year. I
0: love Poltergeist. Friday the
3: 13th Part 3 earned $34.5 million. Friday the 13th Part 3 earned more than The Thing. Creepshow earned $21 million. Funnily enough, Halloween three: Season of the Witch, which Carpenter produced, earned fourteen point four million dollars. Uh, visiting Hours earned thirteen point two million. Amityville two: The Possession earned twelve point five, and the remake of Cat People earned seven million dollars. So it was in keeping with a lot of those lower end ones, but uh, uh, it was well below Friday Thirteenth Part Three and Poltergeist.
0: Well, I think it's better than Poltergeist. I think it's better
3: than all of those movies by quite a substantial margin. Yeah.
0: So just quickly, we're going to do um, we're going to do the quiz. I'm going to direct the question to one of you, and if you can't get it, we'll then defer to the other one. Cool. This is just generally to see who is a better and more intelligent person and please play along at home. Well, it's the person that came here with the research. <laughs> it's the more intelligent person. I also had a laptop I can Google. Uh, we'll go with you first, Damien. What song by Stevie Wonder features in the film? No, oh, that's a good question
3: because I have <laughs> no idea, so let's go uh, superstition.
0: And you are right. Oh, there we go. Okay. I, um, I don't
1: lose because you got it right. Do I? Well, you don't get a
0: point. No, 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 you don't. So, okay, Cameron, true or false, Carpenter wanted to make a sequel.
3: He gets a true or false. (laughs) Gotta go easier
1: on him, Daniel. He's got
3: 50-50. Stevie Wonder must have hundreds of songs. (laughs) You got
0: yours right. Stop bitching. Very
1: serious. All of a sudden there's trash talk. Um, (laughs) I would say, I would say false. True, of course. Yeah.
0: Yes, John Carpenter was thinking of doing one around two thousand and four, and he wanted to tell the story um, from the night after. It's probably a good idea. So it would be know, Child's like two thousand four. <laughs> it would be Child's and um, and Mac, uh, and I guess they walk through the snow. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, <laughs> just sitting on a porch. <laughs> and he was going to explain that that aged so much because of frostbite. That's right. Which is I very. That, I thought that yeah. was really odd. I was like, okay. <laughs> Um and aged... Wouldn't it? Overnight, they aged 30 years. <laughs> wouldn't it
1: f- freeze you in that age? Yeah, yeah. does it reserved. slow
0: down, the ageing process? Anyway. Okay, Damien, this is actually a really hard one, and if you don't know it, it's, it's sort of a silly Superstitious question.
1: Superstitious, but stupid wonder. <laughs> I,
0: I had to include it, though. DOP Dean Cundy is currently the DOP for a movie about a real-life Australian murder case that garnered international attention. It's yet to be released. Do you know which murder case it is?
3: Uh, I don't... I, I, look, one that I can think of that hasn't had a movie, I'd say Catherine Knight?
0: No. Oh. It's the murder of Daniel Morecambe. Oh, OK. Mm. Pretty, it seemed awfully soon. So many of these quiz questions I can't say because you guys have already raised them. So I'm skipping a great many. I gave Cameron one of the answers to what would have been his, didn't I? Okay, Let's um, just
1: uh, reiterate that Damien did not score a point in that round. Okay.
0: <laughs> Cameron, um, nice. how is the name Jed relevant to the thing? There's a long pause going on here. He's, he's thinking.
3: <laughs> it looks painful.
0: <laughs> no. It is the name. Do you know Damien? No, Jed. No. No? It is the name of the um, half-wolf, half-dog. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Alaskan Malamute. Yeah. That is the dog actor in the thing. Yeah. And um, he White had a... Yeah, he had a long life and he had an interesting career. He was in, um, the, what movie? Wolf Fang. And uh, Wolf Fang 2. White, White? White Fang. White Fang. White and Fang. And With yeah. Ethan Hawke. I never saw it, don't care. I love I that film. hate dog. He discovers gold.
1: Yeah, it's, it's so good.
0: Anyway, okay. It's like Marie
3: and Pip. <laughs> Marie Curie is <laughs> discovering gold. Does he just find gold? Or is he a first person to discover it?
2: No,
1: he just discovered... No. <laughs> he, he didn't discover the element, gold. Right.
3: <laughs> I thought white bang. It's a movie is about the discovery s- of gold. <laughs> <laughs>
0: some scientist who just got some. It was good. It was a, a small thing. I've heard it. <laughs> okay, so that was um, a b- barrel for both of you. My... Final question. Uh, what was producer David Foster's first producer credit? <laughs> it's a Robert Altman movie. Nashville? No. Oh, oh. Just guess. It's a Western. I was
1: going to say the... Are uh, the, uh, you giving him hints?
0: I'm giving you both hints. Oh, can
1: we both... Oh, I thought I it was western. Out. I
3: don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a Western, McCabe and Mrs. Mill. Thank you. <laughs> Goodness. For <poor> shame. <laughs> can I have that again? <laughs> Does, hang on. Is the quiz over? That's the quiz.
0: What was the score? I think you won.
1: No, I, uh, I won.
0: <laughs> Did you? 2-1. Oh, well. Jesus. Why I'm are glad you, was you keeping score. <laughs> i just wanted to. I
1: just wanted it to stay. stated. <laughs> no, Say up. it with yeah. me. Um, yeah, okay, anyway. it's about as clumsy as
0: some of the exposition in this movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, some so... of the
3: exposition in this movie is very clumsy, though. Really? Right? The, the, just the scene on... Uh, and the, yeah, uh, the, the, com- the computer screen is the, 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 the one sci- of the most the scientific
1: yeah. deduction that they can he knows he's going to perfectly emulate blah 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 by just opening it up yeah yeah the,
0: yeah like, Yeah. alright like, no, it's like the this has been here for 100,000 100, years yeah. moment he <laughs> just looks
1: like he's saying it between farts and it's like not, <laughs> even, not even a thing <laughs>
0: just scratching his balls just, just like, out oh of this yeah, yeah
1: we've just we found this thing that can emulate every cell in the human body <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, right.
0: but... <laughs> and someone walks in and goes, who left these pants in the kitchen?
3: <laughs> um, Dean, Dean Kundi, who's the cinematographer. Kunde. Yes. Um, he was... Longtime cinematographer of Carpenters. Done all of his films to that point. He did uh, the two Halloween sequels, the first two Halloween sequels. Did all the Back to the Future movies, did Big Business, uh, Roadhouse. I love Big Business. (laughs) Roadhouse, which uh, that was uh, not Kurt Russell, that was Patrick Swayze, wasn't it? Yes, it Mm -hmm. was. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Hook, um, Jurassic Park and Apollo 13, among many others. Mm. So he'd done a lot. Um, Do you know who the original or two of the original writers for this screenplay were after Stuart Cohen got the... Writes was to the a, story. Well,
0: I know Tobe Hooper had a version of the script. Well,
3: about. yes, it is. Tob Hooper and Kim Hankel, oh. who was his screenwriting partner. Right. And they wrote The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but the early drafts weren't to Cohen's liking, uh, which is when a few other people... But
0: Well, I read you know, that the thing was floating and... about for six years in different kind of variations mm. in Hollywood um, before they finally kind of settled on John Carpenter. Mm. Um but yeah, it's interesting, and um, just to say briefly about The Thing from Another World, the film that inspired this one, not just sorry, not just John Carpenter, but Toe Hooper and Ridley Scott have both named the film as key influences in their work, which is, I suppose, why Toe brewed a version of the script, mm-hmm. and um, it's interesting, they say that Christian Nyby, who's credited as directing the film, that um, he was actually Harold Hawks' editor, he worked on like you know, four of his movies, including um, The Big Sleep and Red River. And, um, apparently he got his name on there just because he wanted to be part of the director's guild. He wanted to get membership. So they just throw his name on the film and Howard Hawks didn't want his name attributed to the film because at the time science fiction genre was considered, um, like below critical evaluation and he just didn't want to do a silly genre movie. So he just kind of, but a lot of the actors and people who worked on the film have come out and said, yeah, Howard Hawks was there every day and he directed (laughs) the film. So it
3: is... What a lot of people say about
0: Poltergeist as well. Isn't that
3: funny how that all comes together? This one year, 1982, person who originally wrote a script for The Thing, Tobe Hooper, directed a movie, Poltergeist, which was produced by Steven Spielberg, <laughs> yeah, uh, who directed E.T., who both of those films going up not only against each other, but against The Thing, which was John Carpenter's. Yeah. Um, it's a yeah, it's small world. All, all those three who were massive names Yeah, um, at the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just out of curiosity, um, The Thing From Another World was released in April of 1951, and I just wanted to read you the titles that were released that year. The African Queen in January, mm. Strangers on a Train in July, A Streetcar Named Desire in September, and A Place in the Sun in December. It's like, they're just all such incredible titles, and it's just bizarre that they all came long, 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 long through that year. Yeah. And uh, even though The Thing from Another World was considered like a sort of a bit of a B movie, it was a financial success, and critics guiltily were warm towards the film. Um, and I read that it wasn't really until 2001 A Space Odyssey that the science fiction genre started to get a little bit more um, noticed and, and accepted as an important part.
1: Of. They probably probably peaked there too.
0: Yeah, you're right. Um, so, yeah.
3: Um, the uh, Luke I don't think you've seen they live No Cameron I have So yeah they live holds a lot of similarities to the thing. Um, they're both movies about assimilation In they live it's about people in positions of power who are some kind of alien human hybrid um, and appear human uh, and they, uh, they control advertising and the media to convey subliminal messages such as obey, consume and perform um, but the two films, both directed by carpenter diverge completely on atmosphere they live is bright almost funny at times and the thing is the complete opposite mm. and they live doesn't really ever succeed with the feeling of paranoia which is done so well in the thing
0: yeah um i was thinking about that and i was thinking is it even called paranoia because they all have rational reasons to be yeah. paranoid mm. so it's yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, there are moments where it feels extremely paranoid, but um, they have to be to survive.
1: What do you think of "They Live"? Uh, I think it's like um, subpar for, for for Carpenter. Like, I think it's definitely on the B B stream. I think it it's really
3: it, I think it feels definitely like a B movie when you watch it yeah it's my favourite of his films to watch really it's got they a Live. huge cult following yeah there. it's so much fun and I love Rowdy Roddy Piper <laughs> <laughs> um so and he's the lead actor in They Live um but uh, I think definitely the thing is a much much
1: better film um but it's They Live is really good fun and yeah. the um, Obey in They yeah. Live is the branch now like Mm. But it has been used as a brand. Mm. Yeah. Brand- so brand in brand. 10 years, Carpenter did Halloween,
3: The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, and They Live.
1: I that's, think that... that's a very, very fertile period. It is. Yeah,
3: yeah absolutely. It's um, it's uh, really enjoyable as well. I don't think I get more fun watching a movie A set of movies from a director, more than John Carpenter. Really, he's he's the most fun. Yeah, yeah. I really. I'm glad we picked this film.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. It was good to talk about it, and there was so much material to to Mm. find online.
3: So, I actually rank this movie as my eighth favorite horror
0: movie. So, let's just quickly out of five stars, Cameron. Uh, Five. Damien Five Okay well I feel like a bit of a dead yeah. shit I went four and a half yeah. But that's I'm going to put that down to just I thought there were You know Some some moments in it That I think um, Like a, the slapstick moment With the Norwegian yeah. The pouring the thing into the thing There are just tiny little things yeah. in it That I would personally take out
3: Isn't it difficult to say, talk about this movie And you say the pouring the thing into the thing And now the movie's called The Thing And it's all about <laughs> the things And you've got to use that word to describe it I know um, Certainly I don't think it's a perfect movie No um, I don't think five stars should just be for perfect movies. I kind of rank that differently. So five stars, it doesn't mean that it's as good as On a the Waterfront. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> because it's not. But in terms of horror, it's a five-star horror movie. Okay. <clears throat> well,
0: unless anyone wants to say, I think we'll...
3: Um, I just want to uh, say... It's got something else. I just want to say a few things about uh, where some of this research came from. Um, there's an excellent fan site for the movie. It's called Outpost 31. You can find some very thorough discussion of the movie, a timeline of the major events, and frequently asked questions, which goes over a lot of the mythology and, and uh, some of the things that people are debating. So that's at outpost31.com. Um, Stuart Cohen, who was the producer, wrote a series of blog posts at the start of this, this decade, uh, which gives a timeline of the events surrounding the first half of Shooting and Carpenter's extensive rewrites to the script, among many other things, including casting and budget. That's at the original fan.blogspot.com.au. Uh, and there'll be a whole bunch of other links in the um, show notes. So I've got in there Jonathan Rosenbaum's blog about his set visit in December 1981. And just some other things, uh, reviews and a lot a lot of stuff about people debating the ending and who was and wasn't a thing. Um, and uh, there's a short story called The Things, uh, written by Peter Watts in uh, 2010, and it was nominated for and won a whole bunch of awards. It's a story written from the viewpoint of the thing itself. It's available in its entirety on the Clarks World website, so there'll be a link to that as well.
0: Mm, I started to read that, and it was really interesting.
3: Really well written, yeah. yeah. Um, and also, all of us are on Letterboxd.
0: Yes, and actually, I, I, when I logged this film into my Letterboxd last night, um, I realised I had already written a review of the thing. Ah. So I haven't reread it, but I'll, um, I'll post the link to that.
3: Yeah, so um, we're always logging and rating films we've been watching, and occasionally Luke will do some pretty in depth reviews. So I'll have our uh, usernames in there as well. So
0: you can follow us on Letterboxd if you'd like if you want to get in touch with us to disagree or agree or comment or troll us, you can do so via our Facebook page or visit our website, Can
1: Leave a comment on there. If you want to have a suggestion on maybe a film. that. That's what I was going to, yeah, things?
0: that would be great. Um, so if you have any films that you'd like us to tackle, please let us know. Um, thanks again from all of us and we'll catch you next month.
2: And of course the thing is that, Metaphor for whatever you want to say. It's disease, could be AIDS, could be whatever. But it comes from within you. It's also um, basically uh, the lack of trust that, that's in the world now. We see it all over countries, people. We don't trust each other anymore. We don't know who to trust. Uh, we're with somebody that, that we think maybe uh, they're our loved ones and they may attack us. Um, and that's what the thing is. It has a lot of truth in it, kind of dressed up as a monster.